In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Thompson Logic, and we've got a great show for you today. It's our Mars episode. We are going to the Red Planet to discuss the film, Total Recall, the board game, Terraforming Mars, and the novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. Joining me on this impressive journey are the hobby box, Joe Burns. Heyo! And the comedic hero of rural northern Minnesota, Pat DeGeest. Hey, everybody. Pat, you sound terrible. What's wrong with your radio voice? <laughs> you want to use that? Hey, yeah. I'm Pat DeGeese. Thanks for listening to the Outside is Overrated podcast, everyone. There we go. There we go. Patrick, you recently performed your first comedy act in our hometown of Mora, Minnesota. How was that experience? Did you just make bank as the homecoming king returning home after 16 years, 26 oh. years, 30 years? How long has it been since we lived in Mora? 25 since I lived there. And no, I did not make bank. Maybe you should have gone back in 12. <laughs> Time to better. It was okay. Well, more as a small town, like, you're used to performing in small towns. How did, like, the venue stack up? Like, did anything surprise you about the crowd and who showed up, who didn't show up? I mean, I was there. Yeah. Thanks for coming. It was great <laughs> to see you. Yeah. I, uh, I, I measured a show on just a few metrics. Turnout, of course, is a big one from the business perspective. It was lacking there. I gambled on a big show. It uh, it seats up to 300, <laughs> which is potentially the biggest show I would have done <laughs> i fell very very short of 300 people i had 60 something which is uh i'd call adequate at an adequate turnout well let's uh let's dive into something personal here you're you're performing in mora minnesota in our hometown sitting at the uh at the front table literally right in front of you just feet away is your father and you tell a joke about infidelity involving your parents how <laughs> how is it being in like that moment not trying to give away your punchlines, but like that had to be a very awkward thing to navigate with both your parents in attendance and your dad just feet away from yeah, you. yeah kind of i did warn him i didn't tell him the joke but i just said hey dad i'm gonna tell some jokes about you and he's like, hey, go right ahead. And I said, before you say that, <laughs> you may not like this one, but I, I will let everyone know it's not true <laughs> after the punchline. And he did have a look on his face that, that told me I was accurate and uh, you know, guessing his feelings on that joke. But, uh, you know, I tried to come around and just say, hey, that wasn't true. My parents are fantastic. I love them both. Yeah, you, you handled it really well. Well, it's disappointing that your show in our hometown didn't perform better, but it's not like we're from Minneapolis where there's millions of people that could have potentially come. Right, and Joey and I were talking about this a little bit before the podcast. It's uh, I'm branching out quite a bit in North Minnesota, and uh, I called it area control. <laughs> and Mora is as far south as I have gone, and I'm sure there's a ton of factors into why I didn't get the turn I had hoped, but uh, I am getting... <laughs> quite a bit closer to the Twin Cities where they have tons of comedy. Mora itself has, I know of at least two other producers in the area who put comedy shows on in Mora. Oh, really? And okay. generally, yeah, I like to be the only game in town when I go to an area. So, Smart, it, yeah. yeah. It, it just, you know, might not have been as uh, as special as these other towns that are 
three, four hours away from the Twin Cities. And starving for something or anything different to do. Right. You know, then sit on the tailgate of the truck and drink beer and, you know, go hunting (laughs) and whatever. And trucks and stuff. Speaking of, I was also competing with a gun show, a canoe race, (laughs) a parade of garage sales, and uh, maybe that's it. I think there might have been one more thing, but... (laughs) Terrible timing. That's right. You should have brought some random knickknacks to sell... That could be and your merch that, table. Make that the leg, the <laughs> final leg of the garage sale. Like next year, next year you should do that for marketing and just say this one's later. This one's from seven till ten, um, and you can't buy anything between seven thirty and ten. But <laughs> <laughs> point all the gun show signs to my yes. comedy venue. Yes, we actually tried to take advantage. Uh, we printed out coupons, like buy one get one free coupons, and just handed them out at the gun show. And one person out of probably at least a hundred coupons we gave out showed up. So okay. that's not not my target target demo. You know, <laughs> older, older people in camo. Could you tell I, if they enjoyed it? I could not tell. <laughs> you should have been at the canoe race. Like you should have used your grant money from the state of Minnesota, bought like a speaker and like set it up right in the canoe and like perform going down the Snake River. <laughs> yeah. That's a good idea. Next year. Next year. Yeah. Uh, that river is ripping this time of year. Like. Uh, the canoe race in Mora is no joke, Burns. Oh, I, I wouldn't doubt it. It is no joke. Burnsy, you do things. I feel like I talk to you every day. What's up with you? <laughs> I don't know. Same old, same old, kind of. Um, like, the biggest thing I've been messing around with recently is I've been playing the Final Fantasy Pixel Remasters came out on console. And so I had, like, the goal that I thought it would be cool if before Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy 16 comes out on June 22nd, that I could play through all six of them to completion and get the platinum trophy in all six of them. And I've made How's it, that going? I've made it through Final Fantasy 1 and 2, but I've definitely slowed down now. So that's probably not going to happen in a little over a month's time from when we're recording this. So, uh, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. But uh, I'm working my way through 3 a little bit now. Um, but I've definitely slowed down and been doing just other things instead of playing a lot of time into that yeah well you got a lot of games coming up for the show we're talking yeah. elden ring for the august show we are doing final fantasy in september we've got kingdom hearts in october so like you got a pretty full slate my friend yep and then game pass games every month too so yeah there's there's always something to play that's for sure no doubt before we launch into our show we want to thank our sponsor premier health check out their website at premierhealthmn.com that's premierhealthmn as in minnesota.com Please consider supporting Outsiders Overrated at patreon.com slash OIO. Your support goes towards media consumed for the show, equipment that we use, and other expenses like hosting a website. If you enjoy our glowing, gleaming personalities, you can follow us all on social. Email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. That's overratedpod at gmail.com. You can follow Patrick at Pat DeGeest on Twitter and Instagram. Or follow Pat DeGeest Comedy on Facebook and keep track of all of the shows at patdegeese.com. I get them all, Patrick. Nailed it. Yeah, that, that's quite a list, dude. <laughs> what about TikTok? You got to get on that TikTok. I don't have a TikTok yet. <laughs> get on that. <laughs> follow Burnsy at HobbyBoxBurns on Twitter and twitch.tv slash HobbyBoxBurns. You can follow me at ThompsonLogicOIO on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also follow the show at Facebook.com slash OutsideIsOverrated. What do you put on TikTok? I have one post about a board game. It was pre-sanctum. I can't remember what game it was. I feel like it was a show-related thing. And I strung together several photos. It's a good post. 
It's quality. It's solid. How many views did it get? I don't know. I haven't logged into TikTok <laughs> in ages. The Chinese government. That's one. Yeah. 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 Hey, that's a that's a big untapped yeah, market. It's a, yeah. It's a big Z-pa demo. Zipa dingo wa. Zipa dingo wa. I just that's probably the only Chinese I know because of Wayne's World. So. Oh. Well, for our first topic today, we're going to discuss the film Total Recall. If you are listening to this episode as it drops on June first. You'll be amazed and astounded to know that the original Total Recall film is 32 years old today. It released June 1st, 32 years ago. Directed by Paul Verhoeven, Total Recall is based on a short story by Philip K. Dick. Your favorite name of an author ever, I would guess. (laughs) I was going to say the exact same thing about Patrick. (laughs) Phil Dick is what I like to call him. Yeah, my man. His other friend is Philip McCrack. Total Recall stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sharon Stone, and Michael Ironside. Arnold's character, Quaid, is having recurring dreams that he's with another woman other than his wife on the planet Mars. He goes to Recall to have memories that he is a secret agent implanted on his brain, which sounds like just an awesome idea, right? Like, fake memories? Well, so here's a question. I know you're still trying to explain what the show is about, but it's a question I wanted to ask you guys. (laughs) So there was four options that he had on there it was millionaire playboy sports hero industrial tycoon or secret agent which of those four would you guys choose not talking about of memory specific to mars but if you're getting like this recall thing to to happen which one of those four would you guys choose depends on the stage of life like if i was still a young single guy give me sports hero and a heartbeat uh, but now in my current phase of life let's do industrial tycoon and let's just uh enjoy all of that money but it's a memory, so it could be they could place it probably in wherever in your life that you could possibly want it. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd want Phoenix to be a part of it, so I'm going to stick with Industrial Tycoon. Uh, yeah, either a sports hero or a secret agent, I think would be my top two. I'd have a tough time picking. Yeah, secret agent, I think, would be the way I would go to. Yeah. Because it's like, it's a memory, so it's not like they can kill you in your memory, right? So it's just like you have... No worries and all of like the exhilaration of and like a- adrenaline that's involved with being a secret agent, right? Yeah, and it gives you the out for like not talking about it with your buddies. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> if you're like, hey, remember when I won the Super Bowl? and they'd be like, no, it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're a secret agent, you just like, I can't talk about yeah. this, but man, that was so cool. <laughs> if, I, if I told you, I'd have to kill you, yeah, exactly, kind of yeah. And then you just murder everyone like you do in Terraforming Mars. <laughs> so Quaid, he goes to recall to have these fake memories imprinted on his brain. Something goes wrong. He finds out that his whole life, everything that he thinks is real, is just an implanted memory. His uh, best friend and then his wife both try to kill him. He goes to Mars pursued by government agents. He meets the woman from his dreams and joins the rebels trying to overthrow the evil corporation running Mars. And is there like a more generic like plotline? <laughs> He meets the rebel leader and learns hidden alien ruins could create a breathable atmosphere on Mars. The bad guy attacks, kills the rebel leader, and reveals he was using Quaid all along. Quaid and his new girlfriend are sent to get their minds erased. They break out and confront the big bad. That summarized Total Recall, the film? (laughs) Pretty much. Great, let's move on to the game. (laughs) Oh, come on, we gotta give it its due. Yeah, alright, well, we'll start here. Patrick. Is Verhoeven your favorite director? Like, listen to this lineup of films that he did. This is just a select cut from 1987 to 90 to 97. The films that he did over 10 years: RoboCop, 1987; 
Total Recall, 1990, Basic Instinct, 1992, Showgirls, 1995, and your beloved Starship Troopers, 1997. Quite a run. Uh, who's better? <laughs> who's better? I, I, you could call that a dynasty. <laughs> Is there such a thing as like a directing dynasty? If you have, that's five championships in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll take Guy Ritchie. I'll take Peter Jackson over uh, him. But Peter Jackson made two movies in 10 years. Right? Because did it take more than 10 years to make all three of the Lord of the Rings movies? I thought he made them over three years and then released them over a longer span. The Hobbits. Get out. <laughs> all right, Peter Jackson is off the list. I'll stick with Guy Ritchie, though. He's a phenomenal director. Uh, Verhoeven's first directing credit was way back in 1959, and his last film came out in 2021. Out of his entire catalog, which I think is 34 directing, 32 directing credits, I've seen three of his films now. Prior to the show, it was two. So I guess I'm pretty neutral on him as a director. Bernsey, you have an affinity for RoboCop. Yeah, I mean, RoboCop is probably... It, it's it's it would be on the Mount Rushmore of B movies. I would have to think. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've seen it since I was like nine years old. I, I probably haven't either. The only thing I've seen is there's this thing on the internet where it's called R RoboCop remake or something like that. <laughs> have you guys seen that no. at all or heard about it? So it's basically a group of filmmakers took different scenes from the movie RoboCop and remade them in some way, and then they stitched them together to make a movie out of it. Interesting. Um, and I've only really seen one part of it, and it's the part where he shoots the guy on the street in the crotch, and there's an entire, <laughs> there's an entire like, five-minute scene of RoboCop just shooting the dicks off of, like, all these people. It's, uh, it's hilarious. <laughs> um, and that's, like, exactly your sense of humor, yeah. Tom. Yeah. So, no, I better check it out. Well, um, otherwise, like, yeah... Like Basic Instinct. Um, Which I've never seen, but I understand that Sharon Stone had to pose in Playboy to get the role in that. I assume she gets naked in it. I don't really oh, know seriously? anything about it. I, yeah. I didn't know she had to pose in Playboy in order to be in it. But, According uh, to headlines I saw in five minutes of internet research on Verhoeven. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Um, so the funny story about that is, um, so when that movie came out, like it was the thing everybody was talking about, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, sitting at home, it was me and my mom. And she's like, we should rent a movie on the dish. And so she'd heard a bunch about Basic Instinct, but hadn't heard, like, why people were talking about it. And so, you know, we rented that and started watching it. And she turned it off halfway through. And it's just like, oh, that filth. We should not be watching this. Was it the interrogation scene? Or So I think, I think we made it through that. But then there's, like, sex and stuff after sure. that. And then it's just like... Yeah, it's like, okay, this is not appropriate for, what, 92, I would have been about 10. Um, <laughs> so, Mom, are you going to bed? Like, I really want to finish this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. See, that was at the age where, I don't know, that movie wasn't... So, like, let's take it this way. Like, I probably watched Total Recall for the first time around the same time. And, uh, like, Basic Instinct's not an action movie. It's more of, like, a thriller kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... That really didn't hold my attention much anyway, even if there was, like, random flashes of nudity or whatever at times. And really, a lot of, like, the stuff went over my head. Total Recall, though, like, you just sit down, you watch it, you don't have to have, like, much cognizance of anything. No. Um, it's like, yeah, you just, it, you, it's just a fun ride. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to understand what's going on to be able to follow it. Yeah, there's Arnold and there's all the bad guys. Is Arnold a good actor? And what's your favorite Arnold film? 
so good is a good is good is a relative word. I feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger knows his acting limitations and plays to that in his performances. Uh, like I, he knows that he's not going to ever do Shakespeare or anything like that. He knows that he gets cast for these roles because he's just this big muscle head and kind of sounds funny saying things. And so I think he really plays into that a lot in his, especially like that nineties part of his acting career. Um, and so I don't know, I think, and I think like the directors that like directed a lot of the famous movies with him in those like played to that. Like that's why in the original Terminator, he doesn't say a whole lot and you know, they just make him speak slower and more robotic so that his accent doesn't sound as strange. I think he speaks androidic. <laughs> Absolutely not. He's a robot, Patrick, for Christ's sake, he is a robot. I so yeah, just woke I, my child. I think I think he's good. I, I wouldn't necessarily say he's great, but I think he's a good actor. <laughs> it's hard to deny his appeal on pop culture. Everything from Terminator to Kindergarten Cop. I also, prior to Total Recall, here are the films that Arnold had done. Conan the Barbarian in 1982, Conan the Destroyer in 1984, The Terminator also in 1984, Commando 1985, Predator 1987, Running Man 1987, and my favorite, Twins 1988. <laughs> twin brothers to Danny DeVito. What a tremendous premise i remember watching that movie so that was before total recall okay yep those were all his films preceding total recall what do you say patrick is he the greatest actor of all time <laughs> i think he's terrible but you just you learn to accept that you know that is part of the, the the movie and he's not getting cast for his acting it's a body type especially conan and you think he's a terrible actor but you do enjoy his films don't you yeah like, i do and i just look past it it's uh I don't know. If, if you put Pam Anderson in Baywatch, you're not watching for the acting. Even a lot of Baywatch things... Baywatch is a tremendous, <laughs> tremendous uh, show. It's the flip side of that coin. And he's... Uh, even guys like... There are a lot of one-trick ponies out there, you know? Yeah. Even like a, a, a Jack Black might be that, or an Adam Sandler. They don't act a ton. They just they're wacky, goofy self, well, and that's their that's their one game they're I mean, playing over and over. Adam Sandler is trying to get out of that mold. He's trying, like with uncut gems and stuff like that. And, and I haven't seen any of that. Love so. before. Um, he might be better than I'm crediting. Well, before. I, I, I Jack know. Black is not though. You're a spot on there. My friend. <laughs> there's 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 certain things that he just can't do, right? But I think he tries to do those. Yes. Whereas Arnold, I think, knows that he can't do certain things, and he I think he plays to his strengths. Like for instance. Um, and, and we'll talk. We'll talk some of it about like what shows up in this movie. But I don't know. I and, and I think the most interesting thing about Arnold, and this leads into another question I had, was um, you know he went on from being in these movies, not necessarily being an intellectual, and not saying that you have to be an intellectual to be a politician. <laughs> but he became governor of the state of California. So my question is, um, who is the better bodybuilder turned actor turned governor? Arnold or Jesse the Body Ventura? You know, that hits close to home because we elected Governor Ventura, governor of our home state of Minnesota in yep. like 1998? Um, it would have been... I think it was 98. Yeah, because it would have been... It would have. It was right before I could vote. It was like two weeks before I turned 16. So that probably would have been 98. We voted 18, don't we? Yes. Maybe. So maybe it was 2000 then. I don't know. Anyway. I'll stick with Arnold. <laughs> um, what do you think, Pat? 
Yeah, I'd probably stick with Arnold. Ventura is like a... He's really into conspiracy theories, which is uh, always a warning sign. Like, yeah. really into him. I don't know. He was a key player in getting pot legalized if it passes completely through everything in Minnesota. So there is that. Okay. Yeah. But he's not, he wasn't scales. governor at the time. But <laughs> They were both in Predator, which was my favorite Arnold movie. Yeah. So, And they were fantastic. Ar- Arnold, Arnold is by far the better politician. Not saying that I agree with his politics, but uh, you know Jesse, but the Jesse Ventura, his first two years in office, he did okay, and then he basically stopped working with anybody yes. the last two years. He checked out and just like, well, because he he alienated himself from everybody. He was an independent, um, so you know he alienated himself from Republicans and Democrats, and then he started fighting with like the media at the near the end of his second year in office, and then you know you're not going to win anybody over at that point. So yeah, I don't know. Arnold wins that too. Yeah, Arnold was the better actor too. He was those two. Before we really dive into the film, favorite Arnold quotes. <laughs> favorite Arnold quotes, Patrick. Ah, uh, just off the top of my head, any any movie where he goes, yes. chill out, <laughs> chill out is also fantastic. Like you nailed it. His screams are more iconic, I think, than anything. Yeah. Um, like especially in like Total Recall there's like all the scenes where he's like got his head locked into the machine he's just like yeah. Yeah. and it's just I don't know he and, like his facial expressions at that point are pretty good it's about a tumor um, I think one of my favorite is who is your daddy and what does he do <laughs> get to the chopper get to the chopper good stuff see great actor yeah great I, actor I, I tip the scales he's a great yeah, actor you could, ask the same question for any other great actors and are you going to get as many yeah. answers like just that everyone knows yeah Henry yeah. Cavill I can't effing sleep <laughs> yeah Sylvester Stallone it's just like Adrian Adrian ain't going to be no rematch don't want one <laughs> I am the law <laughs> I am the law Total Recall. This was the first time that I had seen this film. <laughs> Brinzi, you hadn't really seen it since it released. Patrick, how many times would you estimate that you've seen this movie? Not a ton, but I probably every four or five years or something I watch it. So Yeah, so like a dozen times? <laughs> I did six, seven times. <laughs> something like that. I, enough to where I, nothing surprises me anymore from this film. Well, having seen it that many times, like going back to it for this show, how is it taking that trip in time back for a 32-year-old movie? Still fantastic. And everyone like Tom who hasn't seen it should watch it. Just know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. It's it's a classic, you know, action movie of that era, borderlining on parody. Like it, the pendulum swings back and forth into and out of action movie parody the entire time. And if you just know that and you're fine with that, it's a great ride. If you're looking for anything else, you might hate it. Yeah. I think you're underselling it a little bit. Like, it's a great mind F movie. Like, there's, yeah. uh, he's questioning reality and it's like, is this real? Is this not real? Is it all just in his brain? And I thought that was really interesting. Bernsey, how well does this 32 year old film hold up for you? Yeah, I mean, it, so I, I watched it a bunch as a kid. I'd first seen it probably right around after it came out. Um, but I probably haven't watched it in 15-ish years, probably, maybe longer than that. So, like, in general, as things were happening, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah, I remember that, you know. Um, and, like, the, the things that I remembered in my head was, like, 
the the gal Mary from the brothel. Um, that's the three breasted Martian. <laughs> yes, that's that's the three breasted. <laughs> yeah, Martian. that was the one thing I knew about this film going in. <laughs> yeah, is that there's like, a three boob I mean, Martian. You know, you're like about a ten year old yeah. boy. Like that's of course going to be the thing that's memorable for you out of a movie that you're going to remember more than anything else. Um, I think the other thing that I really remembered from the movie was like the the facial animations when they're like in like a oxygen and deprived vacuum because um, I remember that like I don't know it wasn't quite scary as a kid but it was it was something I'd never really seen before back then yep. so those were the two things I remembered for sure coming in and then as I saw stuff watching it again it's like oh yeah that part oh yeah that's who that is okay there are lots of heads exploding in this movie <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah uh, I was really surprised by how much I liked this film. Like, I didn't think it would be terrible, but uh, it would be really interesting to see it like remade with modern effects. And I know that there was another Total Recall film about 10-ish years ago now with Colin Farrell. That movie was fine, but it was nothing close to like uh, rehashing of the original film. We tried to take it in a different direction. I think it was a good movie, but I really want to see this movie with like good effects. Yeah, they were they were quite <laughs> impressive at the time. They're pretty dated now but uh yeah i i agree i'd love to see i mean the effects were better than like anything that comes to mind from the 90s video game movie show right like blows mortal Kombat out of the water um... yeah for sure uh, i mean granted it probably had a much larger budget than most of those 90s video game movies would have had it would be uh i should have chatted with casey before we recorded to get his take on the space physics in Total Recall because he <laughs> he is very passionate about realistic space physics and vacuums and all of that. Mostly just in Star Wars, which is funny because, you know, it's fiction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. He also had Why a... <laughs> is this fake story not real enough? <laughs> he also had a pretty strong take in the one video game movie that I can never remember what it's called, but it's the game that you played that we did in the computer simulation. It was uh, Space Subs. Wing Commander. Oh, yeah, yeah, Wing Commander. He hated the scene in Wing Commander where, like, the uh, door blows open and they, like, throw a cord around Freddie Prince Jr. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, Total Recall. I mean, Stri- there's stuff with vacuum types of things in this multiple times, too, you know, because, oh, space is scary. Space yeah. is difficult. Space is brutal. Mm-hmm. Strengths and weaknesses of Total Recall. Uh, Brinsey, you mentioned that this is an... 80s 90s action movie is that a strength or a weakness in your mind oh i I mean so okay if you are probably like in your like late teens early 20s and you've never you don't have an affinity for action movies of that time frame probably not uh a strength to you but to me that's like a huge strength because there is just a certain style to action movies of that time frame and I, I, like nothing really beats it like the, <laughs> the over the top like action and gore that happens you know the squibs that when people get shot it's like you know paint flying around in splatoon bursting um, yeah just like just like everybody's just these bubbles like everybody has a blood pressure of 200 over 120 and once they get shot <laughs> the blood just explodes out you know um, and it's just there's something to that that I think is just awesome <laughs> yeah, I thought the main antagonist, uh, Cohagen, was really interesting. At one point, he decides to kill an entire district of people just to prove a point. And like, someone's like, "You cut off all the oxygen, they're gonna die." And he's like, "Ah, yeah, f them!" Like, just it was very brutal. And I'm like, "Oh, I can get down with this antagonist." Strength, evil dictator. I, I agree with that one, man. Well, you guys know how much I love aliens, and that's that's a, one of the number one themes in aliens, and they just continue that and. 
not just Total Recall, call, but all the uh, Verhoeven films. You love aliens. What do you think of the mutants in Total Recall? Strength or weakness? Uh, strength. Because like there that. are people that were on Mars, and uh, through shoddy worksmanship and being first terraformers, like they get mutated by the conditions on the planet and that's one of the knocks on the main antagonist is that he cuts corners and like his these domes that he put up for people to live in are just not safe and it's physically transforming people and it apparently turns them into psychics yeah they get weird powers they get uh, claw hands and psychic abilities and uh, are gradually just uh, <laughs> being deformed and the, the leading horrible poverty-stricken lives and again that's it's, it's a theme that is i like in real life is the little guy versus the huge corporation. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Well, you were the huge corporation in Terraforming Mars, but we'll get there. <laughs> Brinsey, you're a huge fan of narrative and all the media that you consume. How was the world building in Total Recall? Was it a believable Earth and Mars setting? Did they set it up in a way that satisfied you? I, I, I mean, I think so. And, you know, it's, it's hard. It's always hard, like, trying to think back and think of, like, what other like in like movies or anything like that, what other representations of Mars that there have been. But I think, I, I think like this kind of became the image in a lot of people's heads as to imagining what Mars would be. And I'm sure a lot of that kind of falls down onto, you know, Philip K. Dick, who wrote the original short story that the movie was based upon, but then bringing that to life and making, putting visuals to it that everybody sees the exact same visual I think makes a big difference. Uh, I think characters too, whether it was like the mutants um, or like the people that are on Mars um, or the people that work for the company, uh, I think all like were pretty interesting and all had like sort of interesting aspects to their characters that kind of played well with each other. I thought that was such a huge strength of this film. The mm. ancillary cast is just phenomenal. You've got Benny the cab driver. You have Laurie, his supposed wife on Earth, who is, turns out to be like a bad fighter uh the three rusted martian the <laughs> <laughs> yes very key character there <laughs> yeah. richter played by michael ironside nah, yeah he's classic character he is classic, actor. Yeah. yeah especially like evil character yes. actor yep. like you know whenever you see him he's like usually almost always if not always a bad guy uh -huh. well and then like the one like henchman that never that didn't die right away that was like with him too like, like his main lackey yeah like the, the guy had the dude with hair. the tracker yeah, yeah yeah like he was interesting too because like there was times when richter wanted to go over the edge like he wanted to shoot at him when they were climbing down the the ladder <laughs> and but the dome was on the other side and he's like he had to like stop him and be like no don't you're gonna kill us all <laughs> you know and it's i think like that was interesting like it's just this little stupid thing but having that in there just adds a little bit more to what's going on mm -hmm. and builds that world it's like oh yeah it would be a vacuum and that would kill people you know it's interesting that you bring that up with the more recent film they kind of they did some different things with the characters like there's a richter character but they also combined it with Lori. so the wife is okay. also the richter like person and she has like a top lackey but she is like constantly going beyond what that lackey says like the lackey tries to be the voice of reason and she just says nope i'm gonna kill him over and over again. <laughs> That's Kate Beckinsale. Yeah, okay. she was she was great in it. I mean, she's great in everything. Uh, we've talked a lot about strengths in this film. Let's talk a little bit about where it struggled for us. Like there are some moments, and I'll get into this a little bit more. There were things were just a little, almost too silly for me to handle. Like there was one moment where I actually stopped the movie and pointed out how ridiculous it was to <laughs> Phoenix, and it's like, okay, I've said my piece. Now we can proceed. Uh, Patrick, was there anything that you want to poke at in Total Recall that you struggled with? 
How could you even ask this question, Tom? <laughs> I mean, this is this the Silmarillion of '80s action flicks? <laughs> the, 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 sil- the silliness is part of the cell, in my opinion. I mean, yes, many, many, many things are silly, but that's part of the ride. Yeah, like the uh, <laughs> Thumbelina, who's a is it little person? Yeah, dwarf grabs a machine gun and like at the bar fight and just. <laughs> Just starts, bah, 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 yeah, bah, 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 just starts spraying the room and like yeah, that wasn't silly. That was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. Just the uh, the pulling the tracker out of the nose. Well, with yes. the tracker for the first part of the film, Arnold is running around with a wet towel on his head so they can't track him. That was very silly. <laughs> um, he took that tracking yes. bug out of his nose. He ripped it out of his head. He sticks it in a candy bar. And gives a candy bar to a rat and completely fools the bad guys. Yeah, they're like, "Oh, he's over there! He's over there!" And it's just a yeah, rat running around in the in the gutters with the, with the tracker. Yeah, that rat got got though. Rip, <laughs> rip rat, rip rat, <laughs> rip rat. There's also a moment. This was the one thing where I had to stop the film. So later in the film, they're working their way through this facility, and Arnold uh, Quaid's Arnold's character Quaid has a uh, bracelet that allows him to put out a hologram of himself like standard video game fair like yeah. uh so the hologram is out walking around and he gets surrounded by military dudes they're standing in a circle like with a diameter of eight feet across they're all firing machine guns into this hologram <laughs> everybody's fine <laughs> everybody's fine Which not a single stray seems like such a missed opportunity yeah. right like you would think that would just what do you what what is what do they care if they shoot all the generic bad guys you like know? the little thing that i noticed too was one of the guys, like, after, like, they stop shooting, like, looks at his gun as if, like, are there blanks in here? <laughs> so it's like he's even baffled that he didn't kill, like, four of his four of his compatriots on the other side of the circle, you know? <laughs> well, there's a scene, like, a minute after that where Quaid comes out and just, like, confronts a couple of the soldiers <laughs> yeah. and he's like, what, do you think I'm the real Quaid? And they just, like, shrug and they, then he shoots them both. <laughs> I am. <laughs> It's so good. Like it's so silly that it's awesome, and I think that's what's that's what's like so fun about about the movie and why it's interesting to watch. Um, one of my like over the top silly scenes was when he's on the escalator and he's kind of getting attacked from both sides by these guys, and he ends up the guy in front of him gets shot by the people on top of the escalator, and he basically uses this guy as a human shield to take like eighty bullets. Like he gets shot from the front, then he starts getting shot from behind. He flips the guy around, and and it's just like this meat puppet just pop 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 pop, and 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 then just the silliness of the fact that. These people, like, all but two of the bad guys die. But there's, like, 50 people dead on this escalator because they're just, like, wantonly trying to shoot at Arnold. And nobody can hit him. He's the biggest yeah. guy on this thing. Nobody hits him. They just hit everybody else. I just, I lost it when I was watching that. <laughs> it's very silly. Uh, Bernsey, were there any other points that you thought were weaknesses of this film? Yeah. Um, I think near the end... You know, as it's like trying to build towards like the climax and the final confrontation, it did get it got like a little long at that point. It felt like. like Are you talking when they're like in the facility right before the final showdown with Cohagen? So it's it's the whole aspect where they like they break out of the machines and then they're like getting their way back down to the mines and then we cut to these people. Oh yeah, they're still like don't have oxygen. They're getting weaker and weaker, and it just like. It, it lost like its pace a little bit through that point. They're setting the stakes. That's good world building, Burns. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, we already knew the stakes that they couldn't breathe, right? Um, but they don't have to show us that scene like four times. And then, you know, there's like, I don't think I'm, 
I don't think I'm over-extrapolating here. There was literally a minute of glass blowing up. <laughs> and it's basically showing every window in Mars yes. get blown up as, like, the thing creates the oxygen in the atmosphere. It's just like, okay, we, we got the idea after the first couple windows, but you just kept going with it. And then and, and it's just like some of that stuff was just like... All right, I get what you're doing. Let's just get to the end here. So that was like, I think that was the biggest weakness for me. Do you think that was maybe showing off the tech at that point? Like, this is a 32 year old film. Like, that was probably a pretty impressive effect. Now, like, now we've seen glass break. It's right. not that big a deal. But back then, like, whoa, did you see those windows? <laughs> Possibly. Whoa. The director's cut has like 12 minutes of windows breaking. <laughs> so he, he really cut it down. Yeah, some of them are stained. It's like various different types yeah, of glass. Yeah, yeah. Like stained glass. Yeah. And... The Martian church stained glass window. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is, uh, that's funny. Any other strengths or weaknesses we want to break down? Patrick, you thought this was a timeless classic that still holds up today. <laughs> All strengths. Like, I agree with Joey there. They, they could have cut out 40 seconds of window breaking. <laughs> Otherwise, nothing else. <laughs> Bernsey, your overall thoughts and takeaways on Total Recall. I mean, I, I feel like this definitely is a classic. Now, it's not a classic like people would say, like the Maltese Falcon or, you know, any of those like classic films that everybody needs to see. But I think this is a classic film that <laughs> yes, everybody should experience yeah. for... Not that it's like a, a high mark in filmmaking, but it's just a lot of fun. And it is the quintessential like late 80s, early 90s action flick. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and so and I think that also set kind of the idea in people's heads of what it would look like to have a colony on Mars. Um, I think a lot of that almost like cyberpunky type of view is what a lot of people imagine if they were going to imagine a colony on Mars. And I think, you know, that shows the strength of the movie that it was able to create this and show this to people that that's probably how they would explain what Mars civilization would look like. I picture a lot of cannibals, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, now, there's one other thing where he is given a red pill to take. Um, and I was wondering if this was like the first instance <laughs> that led to then the matrix using oh. the red pill and the blue pill. Um, you know, that was like nine years before the matrix came out. I didn't and, even think of that. And so that was, that, that was one thing when that popped up, I was like, I wonder if this was actually what instigated the, the Wachowski family to, to come up with that. Um, I don't know. That was another thing that stuck out to me that I thought was interesting. Yeah. Good catch. I didn't really think about it. Yeah. I think that this film is a must-see for sci-fi and mind-f film fans. I don't know if it's for everyone, though. Like, if you have no... Like, I can't imagine sharing this film with my dad, for instance. Like, no interest in sci-fi. <laughs> like, I don't know. Does he like girls with three boobs? Who oh. doesn't like girls with three boobs? See? So there's a reason. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> Patrick, your closing <laughs> thoughts on this timeless classic. Yeah, it's just 90s action movie excellence like in all its glory just know what you're getting into enjoy the ride uh i, I got it on amazon prime and i want they have little side notes i thought it was fun uh, for hoven uh hired like real military personnel 
to play the uh, the generic troopers. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure they were just disgusted, right? Like, <laughs> in, inept generic troopers are, you know, nothing new in Hollywood. But, yeah, the scene where they're standing in the circle shooting yeah. each other. I really or, wonder what they thought. Yeah, or the escalator scene where none of them can hit, you know. <laughs> they, they just run out on a line and stand there shooting. I'm yeah. sure they're just all disgusted by that. But, yeah, <laughs> hope they had fun being, <laughs> being in a feature film. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, the uh, the official OIO take on Total Recall, it's pretty good. So where would you say this would rank in your, like, where what percentile would this be in in all movies or TV shows that you've watched for OIO? Would it be, like, top 50%? Would it be, like, the 95th percentile, so top 5%? Where do you uh, think it would fall? It'd be above all the video game movies for sure. So okay. Put those at the bottom of the list. Uh, we've talked about some pretty remarkable directors on the show. We did a Guy Ritchie show. We did a Peter Jackson show. We did a Quentin Tarantino show. And even though <clears throat> I don't particularly like Tarantino's films, I thought they were all better than Total Recall. So I would say this is probably in the lower third, the top of, like, the lower third. I think that's mm. too low. I think it would probably be for, well, I guess I'm more skewed because I haven't been on those episodes. I've only been really on the video game episodes. Um, so it's definitely in like the top, like the 90th percentile for me. <laughs> I'd put it below Clerks and I'd put it below um, Bill and Ted as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, Clerks was one of the most important movies of the 90s. So, of course, Clerks would be above it. But... <laughs> Specifically Clerks 3. <laughs> Specifically. Oh, good question. I, I mean, for me, I enjoyed the film, but uh, we've talked about a lot of good movies on the show, so it'd be pretty low for you me. You have. I, I, yeah. I really haven't as much. Yeah. yeah, we do movie shows when you're away in February. Apparently. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. So I have this friend, Mary, that I see from time to time, and she has a very unique physiology. I mean, that's one of the coolest things about her, but dealing with being tryened out on her front has over time led to a lot of pain in her back. Do you have any suggestions, aside from surgery, because you know, I don't want to get rid of that, um, to help her deal with the extra weight she's carrying? <laughs> we sure do, Burns. Mary should check out Premier Health. They have solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident, over-endowed compensation injuries, and more. We suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN, as in Minnesota.com. That was a phenomenal Phenomenal read, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> For our next segment today, we are going to discuss Terraforming Mars, also known as something else. Released in 2016, Terraforming Mars casts one to five players as mega corporations leading the charge to terraform the red planet. Patrick, this is just like your power fantasy, right? <laughs> like being a big evil corporation trying to grind everything to your will? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, no. <laughs> I try to be a good corporation, but when you're competing against other corporations, you just gotta... I would say that's not how this game played out today, but... <laughs> this game was designed by Jacob Fryzelius. He has designed the Terraforming Mars expansions, the game After the Virus, and the game Space Station. Terraforming Mars has a board game geek rating of 8.4 mm -hmm. and is ranked 6th amongst board games. Sixth. Wow. Yeah. It's so the the board game geek rankings though, like it it tends to it tends to skew towards like once a game gets up in the rankings, it takes a while for it to drop down just because of the sheer number of like ratings and votes that different ones get. Um, but yeah, it I mean it's definitely up there, and it was it was a 
it was a big game when it came out and super popular for a long period of time. Yeah, it should be. It's awesome. The core gameplay loop in Terraforming Mars, you gather resources, Megabucks, which Burns lovingly calls Mars Euros or Muros. That's actually what they are in the game. No, they're Megabucks or Mega Credits. I thought they were Mars Euros. Yeah. It's yeah. a Euro symbol, though. Yeah, it might be the Euro symbol, but uh, <laughs> the uh, instruction book calls them mega credits. I don't know. I think that's I think that's a typo. Yep. No. Nope, definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> no way to find out. Nope. <laughs> Impossible. So you're gathering resources, which includes currency, steel, titanium, plants, <laughs> energy, and heat. On your turn, you're going to research some new technology. Essentially, you draw cards and choose whether or not to purchase them. Then. You go around the table taking actions. Each player takes one to two actions per player before it passes on to the next player. Once you, all the players have passed and decided to take any more actions, you move on to the next generation and repeat. Uh, you play until there is enough oxygen, water, and heat on the planet to sustain life. And uh, one thing that I missed in my recap, you also do everything you possibly can to keep Tom like downtrodden. <laughs> every, every move must be carefully calculated to try to... Provide maximum impact on Tom. I mean, this last game <laughs> yeah. maybe did kind of end up a little bit like that. But... Yeah, yeah. Two on one versus the uh, plant and uh, I feel what your company did. Alliance. Robinson Industries. Yeah, the plant and research or production <laughs> yeah. alliance. Yeah. So a couple of little things um, to add to the gameplay loop. So you're playing as a corporation, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just alluded to. And there's all these different corporations that seem to have a focus towards one of the different types of resources. One of the other big things you're doing other than just gathering resources is you're increasing your production of those different types of resources, which every game turner, every generation, as it's called in the game, you gain that innately on top of then whatever you gather from playing the different projects or cards in the game. So that's, I think, the other real big aspect is um, not just resource management, but like your resource production management and getting that ramped up in the things that you want to be higher for what your strategy is and on your turn you have to like balance gathering resources increasing production and playing things that will either uh raise the different aspects of mars that you're working towards oxygen or uh raising the temperature or placing ocean tiles so it's a big it's a major balancing act between doing all the things that are available to you without focusing too much on any one thing which no well-rounded <laughs> and seasoned player would ever do. <laughs> Expectations going into Terraforming Mars. I had never played this game before. I was really excited to, and that's frankly why we did a Mars show. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I invited you guys to be on the show. We each chose a Mars-related theme, and uh, I started by choosing Terraforming Mars. I knew it was really well-regarded. I knew that all the cards were different, but I didn't appreciate just how many cards would be included for the variety of things that you can do in this game. Patrick, your expectations coming into Terraforming Mars. Uh Slim to none. I mean, not low. Tempered. I knew it wasn't really my style of game, and that's about all I knew of Terraforming Mars. And your style of game is generally chucking dice and killing things, right? Yeah, yeah. Killing things, uh, a lot of head-to-head uh, -head player interaction, or like, you know, dungeon crawl type games. War games, yeah. Anything that involves killing and dice is usually what I prefer. Yeah, I'm specifically a... killing you guys. <laughs> right, you did a bang up job in this game. I'm a deck building, dice building type of guy. That's like my wheelhouse. I love building my deck and culling out cards. Burnsy, what would you say is your like core game uh, mechanic? Um, because we both have pretty eclectic tastes. Yeah, I mean, I like playing all sorts of different games. I like playing worker placement games and like engine building games, which this kind of is. Um, I, my favorite types of games are probably like cooperative games um and i know cooperative isn't like 
a genre per se as yeah. a type of game. But well, you turned this into a cooperative game. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, Pat and I ganged up on you. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I, those tend to be the game experiences that I end up sort of leaning towards more than anything. But I think this is still fun, even though it's a competitive game. Burns and I are we are always on the show together, and Pat often comes down when we have a board game show to play the games with us. Do you two just hate playing games together? Like rolling dice and killing people, cooperative experiences. Not really. Not um, really. No, because I enjoy playing those other types of games too. Um, they're just not necessarily my my favorite per se. Um, so you'd settle for Patrick. Well, so the other thing is I'm not like super competitive at games. Um, in that, like I don't like I my feeling of worth in playing a game isn't that I've like won. Um, it's more so, have I had fun? Did I do interesting things? Was there like memorable stuff that happened during the game? Like that's the stuff that I more so kind of find as a success in a game. It's nice to win. It's fun to win, but I don't have to win in order to enjoy it. I'm with you in that I don't have to win to enjoy it, but my core gameplay metric is to keep Patrick from winning. (laughs) Generally speaking, when I'm playing a game with Patrick, I view Pat as a threat, and so I want to do everything that I can to hinder him every step of the way. So it was uh, it was very strange having the tables turned and feel like you guys were both stacked against me in this most recent <laughs> I'm play. I'm well aware of that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm similar to Joey. I like, I like you know, player conflict, um, but generally board gaming is fun if there's mm-hmm. a strategic decision-making going involved. Yeah, games are good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Board gaming is certainly more fun than sitting around doing nothing even yeah. if it's not in my preferred type so yeah and this game's great and theme's a big part of that you know mm-hmm. uh, like i'd much rather play uh, uh lords of water deep than a viticulture hey, myself I, did you play viticulture with us for the show yeah yeah it's a good game it is a good game we got but crushed I, but yeah yeah i like you know the theme goes a long way with me so, so it's probably helps a lot with this game a smart person called it the dark souls of winemaking <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, Burns, we played a number of games of Terraforming Mars leading up to this. We played two players, we played three players, we played four players. It goes up to five. Uh, what were some of the things that you enjoyed about this experience getting ready for the podcast with all the games that we played over the last three weeks? Yeah, I mean, so I've, I've actually played this game quite a bit um, before. Um, like for a board game, I've, I've played it like six times prior to us preparing for the podcast, um, which, you know, for a board game's a lot, like... You know, we wish we could play all of our games all the time, but really when it comes down to it, mm-hmm. you maybe get out of games, unless they're like your favorite or you're playing them regularly, you maybe get a few plays out of each game that you have, you know? Um, that's just the nature of things. Um, so I've actually played Terraforming Mars like more than most board games. Um, but so one of the things I was worried about coming in was that, you know, am I going to be sick of playing this game by the time we play it? Because I knew we were going to play it. A handful of times. And quick point of reference, when we did the Cowboy Bebop show, we played Cowboy <laughs> Bebop Space Serenade. We played that like four times back to back to back. I haven't touched it since. Yeah. Like, I am good. Yeah, I was I was happy to be done with that game when we were done playing it that last time and we for played, a long time. <laughs> we played Terraforming Mars more now, but I swear to God, like if I didn't have family stuff after this, I would clear off this table, we'd set it up again, and we would play until I won that freaking game. <laughs> Even if it down. took years. <laughs> So, and that's the thing I think that I found is that, um, it, 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 I think it, it's weird how much replayability it has, but it does. Um, and I think that's like one of the things that stood out to me playing it even more times. Um, you know, I, we probably played it five or six times at least. 
We played it more than that. We played twice two player. Uh, we played twice four player, and then we played uh, three, four times three, three player times, now. Three times. So yeah, seven times we've played as prep for the show, and so um, yeah. And I, I've still, I've still enjoyed every time I've played. There was one game where things just didn't fall right for me at all, and I. You know, was a little bummed, but then I just started messing around with some other stuff near the end of the game and still had fun. Um, but yeah, I, I like it, it's that's one thing that surprised me as we were prepping is is how much fun I've still had with the game and how much I've enjoyed it. I also noticed one thing that you did is you tried different strategies just about every time we played. Like I really struggled in doing all the things that were available. Like I'd get locked into a thing that I was trying to do, and that's probably why I lost all but one game of this game uh but how was it trying those different strategies like what were a couple of the things that you tried so i tried different strategies but it was typically the same strategy if that makes sense score the most points okay great great analysis <laughs> no, no, no. so like so one of the things that i focused on in each game was getting two of the milestones I can get two of the milestones that you have. So the first person to get to it, you pay your eight mega bucks, and then you sponsor that thing, and you get five victory points for each of those milestones at the end. So each game, one of my focuses was, well, especially in the, like the two or three players, try to get two of those, or at least try to get one of them when we were playing more players, because it's like those are victory points that you just got, and the investment for that is really just as long as you're getting the cards or put in the right situation to do the thing, it's just eight extra points, which, you know, for that many victory points is a pretty cheap investment. Yep, so that nobody like, can take it away from you. Yeah, so that was like something I always tried to do. And then get one of the awards, um, whether, you know, whether I sponsored it or not, try to at least get one of the awards, if not two, because then it's like that's just more victory points you get at the end of the game, which is, which is important. Um, and then it's really like looking at my corporation and determining like what two or three resources I want to focus on on that game to try to get my production like up for so that I can like take advantage of that as much as possible. And then depending upon what resources I'm getting, then that's like, what am I putting on Mars because of those resources and trying different things. Like I had games, like you said, where I was like a bunch of different microbes or whatever. And I had some games where it was um, like getting points for cities that were put out or production for cities that were put out kind of like what you did in this last game yeah great um, strategy it worked out wonderfully so yeah I, I tried a lot of different things but a lot of that tended to be predicated along like what what corporation i picked and what their sort of bent was and then if at least one of my prelude cards would push me more in that direction or help to support that then that's great um and then you know I think also getting certain cards early on um, that like tie into that can really set you up well for the first like half of the game. Um, and then if you don't do other things right, you might fall behind at the end of the game. Cause I had that happen a couple of times too. Um, so yeah, I, it, like you said, it was different strategies, trying different strategies, but a lot of it was sort of in the same basic idea of what I was trying to do to get victory points overall. Uh, Patrick, I know that you loved the theme of this game. What is it about the theme of building habitation on Mars that was so interesting for you? Do you just like turning up the temperature? <laughs> oh, here's my eight heat cubes. I get to turn the dial yeah, up one. Let's crank it up. No, no, it's uh, a couple things. Sci-fi is my favorite genre, and uh, kind of adventure slash exploration is something I've always been drawn to in real life. 
So when you got the card where you could spend the money and hope to find life, like that must have been <laughs> a tremendous boon for you. How'd that card work that out? That one was a disaster. That card was a disaster. Hey, but all the fun's in the journey, not necessarily the result, right? <laughs> exactly. That's the right motto to have going in. You hope you get a good result. Don't die at the end. But yeah. No, no. I'll, uh, yeah, the theme is fantastic. I'll echo just some things Joey said. One of my favorite things, and I've only played this five times, so it's not like I fully, fully grokked the mission to Mars. But um, it, it really seems like there are just uh, so many possible way, paths to victory, and I, I have yet to see them, something that I see like that's overpowered and it it's bothering me. And it, you can also, I I think, pretty well adjust on the fly. I mean, not completely change your strategy, but if you get a, a good card that it can deviate your mm-hmm. path from what you were you know focused on ahead of the time you can you can add that and keep racking up points mm-hmm. and i i don't know the corporations were fantastic that seems to add a lot of replayability yeah and the corporations there's a deck of different corporations i forget how many are in the base game and we played with the uh prelude expansion which added a couple more corporations but every player gets dealt two and each corporation has a special ability like the game we just played i gained one money production every time someone placed a city on the board so i you guys were placing cities so i just fill up the entire board with cities everywhere uh Burnsy's corporation had more plant production and you get victory points for placing greenery on the board as well as bonus points for having greenery next to your cities uh pat's corporation gave him a way to increase production on his lowest thing so each one of the corporations had a different uh bent to it and you got to choose from two to kind of shape your playthrough there are a lot of different things that you could do in this game um what I thought was interesting is that you really need to focus on doing things that matter. Like every every turn you're drawing four cards and it's like, oh, well, here's a world of possibility. But each one of those cards is going to cost you some of your mega bucks. Yeah. And like if you don't have enough money to play the cards, they're just going to sit in your hand and be worthless for you. And I, you know, I always got so focused on trying to ramp up production that I just never I was never very efficient with my turns. It's so I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of the game is am I going to, and it kind of matches up to business. Like your investment is buying the card and are you going to reap the benefits of that investment or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, and that's something I think playing first, playing early on, it's really hard to know if you're going to be able to make use of that or not. But as you play the game a little bit more, it, it does help to make that decision a little bit better or knowing how that fits into like, the cards that you've played or where you're going with things. But um, I think it's one of those things where um, that's like, that's one of the key gameplay mechanics is how much am I spending to play these cards and are they going to be worth it in the end? One thing that the game does that is interesting, trying to balance itself for new players. I mentioned the corporations and how they all have unique ability. But when you're first starting, they recommend a beginner corporation. A beginner corporation gets a stack of money. They have no special ability, but you get 10 cards at the start of the game and you get them all for free. Whereas anyone with a corporation has to pay three mega bucks for each and every card that they keep. So a beginning player has a handful of options. And like, honestly, if you're playing against somebody who has played before, you're going to lose your first game. Uh-huh. It's yeah. just how it is. But it's uh, they give you tools to really try a bunch of different stuff. So hopefully you can get through that first gameplay, find how some things work, find yeah. some synergies, and be ready to really play on your second game. Well, it gets rid of that hard decision of, well, what, what are these do I keep? I have no idea. Um, and it also helps you, as cards are played, you have this larger hand of cards to get a better understanding of 
you know, oh, okay, I could see that that would work with that card that Tom played. Or I just drew these four cards. I have to choose a couple to buy. Um, that works with this one card I have in my hand or these two cards I have in my hand or these cards I just played. So, yeah, it, it helps you get a little bit wider picture of what you're getting into, um, which I think is helpful. And I think part of, like, when you were saying, like, the replayability um, and how you can't really, like, cheese a strategy in order to win... I think a lot of that is just because I think there's just enough cards that you can't be sh sure that you're going to get a certain right. card or three. You know, like there's some combinations in the game that are super strong, but there's no way to be guaranteed you're going to get that. You know, you draw your four cards at the start of the turn, and if it's in there to buy, it's there. If somebody else has it, somebody else discarded it, you don't know until they play it. And so you can't really you can't really focus on if I only had this these two other cards then I'm golden, right? Um, and, and so I think that's that's the other aspect of the game that helps to protect it from how some of these other like resourcey games go where, oh, I just do this certain thing because it's go down the tech options track. on the board. Yeah. Um, you know, I still disagree that that's the only way to win that game, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's how it protects against that. That, that extra level of randomness um, makes it so that you can't bank on any of that. So you have to really just think about the tools that you have and how you use them. And did we mention that there's one of each card? That So if there's something you like that has worked for you, there's the odds are actually quite good that you won't get it in future yeah. games. Yeah, or like Tom, you had like the rails like three games in a row, it felt like. Yeah, I did. That was great. <laughs> yeah, I would have really liked them this last game too. Yes. I thought it was interesting that there was no real way to kind of mess with each other, but you can position yourself to benefit from other players. So like when I saw the hand that I was dealt in this most recent game, I'm like, all right, well, I get benefits from putting cities out there. Eventually, somebody's going to have to play some greenery on the board. So if I spread my cities far enough, eventually someone's going to pop some trees and I'm going to benefit <laughs> from that. Didn't quite work out, but uh, that was a way that I was able to try to anticipate what you guys are yeah. going to do and position myself to benefit from it. Because the opposite side of that was Tom's putting out all these cities. He's not leaving me a lot of spots to put down my greenery. I still planted a lot of trees. Yeah, they just game. all touched Patrick City and he wound up crushing us. <laughs> so did. thanks for that. Yeah. That, Great alliance, guys. That wasn't the difference. <laughs> was that a shared victory? <laughs> that wasn't the difference between no. him beating me because there was other things that that wasn't enough points that would have turned it in my favor if I didn't put any of those trees down. Because the other thing is it's like, sure, he got extra victory points for his cities touching those trees. I still got those victory points when I placed them. So really unless there was maybe one tree where he got two points off of it because it touched two of his cities, all the rest, you know, we equaled out on the victory points on yep. that. Everyone anyway. benefits but Tom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you got, got it. you got a couple of trees placed by your things too. Mm -hmm. It's just when you have like two cities or three cities in a, cities in a cluster, well, I'm not going to put a tree there. You put your own. I'm going to put my nuke there instead, <laughs> Tom. That's what I'm going to do. And like... I was very city heavy in this most recent game, but that wasn't what I originally set out to do. Yeah. I was going to make a little cluster of cities and I was going to fill it all in with trees and get stack up all my bonuses and be super efficient. And then mm -hmm. you guys started blocking those tiles so I couldn't place trees. And it's like, all right, well, I got to do something else because uh -huh. like, this isn't going to work out the way that I had hoped. Uh, Patrick, we talked a bit about Burnsy strategies. How did you shape your different playthroughs of this game? What strategies did you try and did they work? Uh, I... They worked with varying degrees of success. Being I mean, you won more games of this than me, and I've played <laughs> okay. many more times. I'll take it. <laughs> I kind of let my corporation guide me. I 
you get a choice of two as you start mm-hmm. the game, and I would just pick the one that <laughs> felt the best at the time. And then I would just really try to ramp up one or two resources early and kind of exploit what that allowed me to do for as long as I could. Well, I think it was your first game. You were drawing 80 money, 80 megabucks at the end of the game. And, like, I played this, how many times did we say? Seven, eight? Seven, I played this yeah. a lot. I have never come close to drawing 80 <laughs> money on a turn. You had, what, 66 this last game? 67 in the last turn. So, like, that's the most I did. And you did that on, like, your first playthrough. So, yeah, I, I guess you found a way to maximize at least one resource. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think, well, I lost that game, though, right? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good game. You should have done <laughs> so, money every it felt single good time. Cashing it in at the bank, but uh, not at the end of the day. Well, I think the other interesting thing about the game is that certain resources are more popular, are more profitable to play or to get earlier in the game than later in the game. Like heat, especially once, unless unless you know you're unless you're trying to get the heat list or whatever I can't it's not I, <laughs> thermalist that's thermalist yeah thermalist heat list unless you're unless you're the going for the thermalist there's like once the heat's all the way up to the top unless you had that one card that you mentioned where you get victory points for bumping the heat up even if it's maxed out of like two hundred cards yeah <laughs> pretty slim um, odds yes so unless you have that there's like no benefit to having heat at the end of the game like once that gets maxed out. If you have a lot of heat production, there's not a lot of good for that. Mm -hmm. Similar with plants, and once the oxygen goes all the way up, you don't get victory points when you place the trees. You still get a victory point at the end of the game for them, but they're not worth as much for putting the greenery down as it is while the oxygen track is going up. I think it would have been incredibly valuable for you to pop some more trees (laughs) as a playthrough. No, because like I said, most of the time I was looking at it, it's like I would get one victory point, you'd get two, so there was no reason to put one there. Yeah, the whole world is stacked up against me. Uh, talking about strategies, like I have a weakness. I just single-mindedly focus on one thing. And in my favorite game, Scythe, that works out well. Because like you start very small in Scythe, and as you specialize in things, you unlock more fulfilling actions that you can do later in the game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my brain just can see that, and I see the Matrix, and I'm like, all right, boop, 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 I win. Again, great, let's go play Scythe. In Terraforming Mars, it's all about making the best of all the options in front of you. Everything you can do is on the table from the start of the game, which can be really overwhelming to start, but like all the tools are there. There's a little bit of randomness with the cards that you draw, and as many times as we've played this, I get, I get locked into one form of production, <laughs> uh-huh. and like it winds up killing me in every single game. So, Tom, would you be saying that like your gameplay style is like a musical? You have your script that you're doing ahead of time, and you're going to you're gonna, f- you're gonna play that music out uh, exactly as it goes from start to finish. Whereas my gameplay style is like jazz, and it's just sort of like, <laughs> okay, this popped up, let's try this. This popped up, let's try this. And sure, I have like the structure of what jazz music sounds like, but I'm trying different things to see what kind of happens, and and just sort of improvising a little bit more. I. Uh... I believe that you're right with the script. I think that I am scripted, and I think that's a detriment, but that's not how I perceive myself. Uh-huh. Like, I take a lot of pride in being able to like quickly scan data and like crunch it real quick, not get into the deep think, and know, have an idea of what the best possible action is, but the results are not there in Terraforming uh-huh. Mars for me. So, like, I don't know. I think you're right that I am scripted, and I desperately need to break away from that to be competitive. I also have a note. I just love funding awards for Burns. <laughs> like you have to pay money to lock an award, and then whoever does the most of that thing at the end of the game gets extra victory points. And it's happened many times across these playthroughs. Like I'll have a strategy. It's like, oh yeah, I, I 
doing crazy heat and energy so i'm gonna get the heatalist award or the heat monger (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and then burns will swoop in at the end and it's like oh great i got second place so instead of five victory points i get two great love this game (laughs) i lose again awesome it's always the worst feeling yeah i mean like pat got points because of the one that i supported near the end of the game so that Tom wouldn't put one of the two that he could have gotten. So yeah, I did probably target you a lot more than I usually do in this last game. Yeah, oh, I'm aware. So I kind of <laughs> apologize for that. Yeah. I was just I was very worried about your cities. Um and and that like if you were going to be able to capitalize on that that like you were going to be this unstoppable juggernaut. Yeah, this is the last time we're going to play Terraform Mars probably for a while. So uh, let's make sure that we ruin this experience for Tom. Like he keeps talking about how much he loves this game. Let's uh let's really give it to him. Let's really Tom the Tom and see how that Tom's out. Is this ruined more than Battlestar Galactica is? <laughs> uh, no, because in Battlestar Galactica, you can take direct action against other players. And getting locked in the brig and getting handcuffed in every single game, uh, that's worse than this. Yeah. Like, it's annoying that you guys put your tiles around me, and that's just how it worked out. And, like, it, it's, I think it makes for good radio. It gives me something uh-huh. to rail against you guys yeah, for, yeah. which is just great. But, like, Battlestar Galactica, I openly loathe with our core group of friends. Now. Like, <laughs> I just won't play with the Moro friends anymore. Like, I'll play at a board game weekend if I go. I'll try uh-huh. it with different groups. But, like, that game is still on timeout. <laughs> With the Mora friends. <laughs> At least you still weren't. You never have been in the brig the entire game like Clovis was that one time. The only time we <laughs> played the game, spent most of it for uh, most of it in the brig. Yeah, uh, I blame you for onboarding us there. Like none of us knew that he could just get out if he was a Cylon. <laughs> Plus, I was a Cylon, and I was happy that there was someone that probably wasn't a Cylon in the brig. <laughs> that game worked out great for me. That's true. That is true. Um, so, but there is there is one other aspect that we didn't touch on that you can negatively impact the other people if you have on your card it says to remove resources from someone you can remove that from anybody um and so that is one thing that you can play sometimes to be able to really negatively impact one of the other players so I don't know. In our early games, you nuked my plants like all the time. <laughs> well, Burns, it was two-player games. Like, what true. am I gonna do? And like, we've had a lot of fun with that joke, but like, I literally didn't have any other option. It's like, oh, I could take my own plants away, but I'm trying to win this freaking game. So, Burns, true. please toast your plants. No, it's one of those things where I try not to like too narrowly focus on like one person with that stuff. So, Until today, no, I'm no, glad no. that I could break you out of your uh, with those mold. things. It was whoever had the highest production of that type. If I was removing production, I would remove it. Um, and so like, you know, Pat had more titanium production. So I had him remove his titanium production when he was up. You, even when I knocked two of your megabuck production down, you still had more megabuck production than everybody else. And then I made a big leap that turn too. Yeah. So So like, so like it didn't really matter to you. It was the right call, but piled on top, (laughs) piled on top of all the other actions you guys took against me in this game. Like it just felt like piling on. (laughs) You guys are mean. I don't want to play with you anymore. There's one other path to victory in this game, or one other way to accumulate victory points. A lot of the cards that you play have victory points yeah. down in the bottom corner. Was that a central strategy for either of you guys, or is that a byproduct of just making the most of the resources that you had? I mean, I think that won you the game this time. Yeah. Because you had a lot of points that you had in your cards at the end, and that's what allowed you to leapfrog me. And um, Eiffel Towering me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, it was not an essential strategy. It was uh, kind of just a byproduct. I had a lot of steel, so I was just getting cards with steel, and many of those cards happen to have points. And mm-hmm. uh, talking about how nice it is that there are paths to victory, I think that was a cool experience to win that way because they're never, they're rarely exciting when you play those cards at the moment. Yeah. 
because they don't give you anything now. But then, you know, at the end of the game, and you get 10 points from cows and starfighters. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, six from planets with the planet symbols on yep, your yep. thing. It's it's nice that that's also a, a nice boost, boost at the end. Because I would have thought I was... I would have ended last in that game. Yeah, early on through the first half of the game, I thought that Burns was just going to crush us. Like he claimed the milestones early, he seemed to have good production. I'm like, oh, I see, I see the writing on the wall here. Yeah. So let's build a bunch of cities. Yeah, that'll see, show them. And the problem, I, I, I actually, from like the middle point of the game, I really didn't think I was going to win. Um, I obviously was most worried about you, Tom, because of that. I also knew that Pat was going to get. Um, at least one victory point for his Jovian per every Jovian tag that he had. So I was a little concerned about that. Plus he had the Starfighter. He was getting a victory point each turn from on. the beginning of the game. Yeah. And so I was worried about Pat a little bit too, but he was lagging so far behind in terraforming rating for a while that he wasn't as much of a threat. And the problem I kept having was I just wasn't getting like, I wasn't getting like big impactful cards. Mm -hmm. I was getting a lot of like cards that were in the teens in cost and like I was generating and had lots of mechanisms to pay for things, um, either by turning in resources to get more money or spending resources to buy things. And so like I, I just wasn't getting cards that was really allowing me to capitalize on that. Um, like near the end of the game, like I ended the game with I think ten titanium, nine titanium, because I wasn't getting any cards that I could spend the titanium on those space cards to to to, to put them out. And so that was like what I kind of ran into. And I was trying at the end of the game to just draw cards whenever I could to see what I could get that would maybe be impactful. But um, that was kind of like what I ran up against. Because otherwise I had a pretty good engine of generating um, lots of plant resources, a good amount of steel and titanium, and then money. Not nearly as much money as you guys are generating on a turn. But I had such a lead on the terraforming rating that I wasn't as concerned about that. Because that was helping to offset the extra production you guys were getting uh, until the end. But at the end, it really didn't matter because none of us really had the cards to spend tons of money to be able to, to put them out. So The favorite strategy that I had was actually the with the corporation that you had. It's unfortunate that it was Pat's first game, so I didn't get a real test of it. Uh, but your ability allowed you to place greenery on the board for one last plant. And I got good plant production. I'm like, oh, I'm going to put trees all over this place. And... That was really fun, but uh, uh -huh. Pat had never played before, so it was the only game I won, but it didn't really feel like a like an honorable victory. <laughs> Strengths and weaknesses of terraforming Mars. We all agree that it's a great theme, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Going to Mars, building a bunch of stuff, awesome. I think we can all agree that it's a major strength that there's a lot of different things that you can do. Yep. A uh, variety of corporations gives you different ways to pursue victory. That's great. Uh, for me, the biggest weakness is just my dumb brain and my inability to break out of the mold to play well. <laughs> and, and you know, I, th and I, I think you're 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 getting closer to that. I think yeah, like like we talked about, you you just get so laser focused on like one or two strategies, and you end up like knocking those out of the park. But it usually like there's that last little step that could capitalize on it the rest of the way that you just aren't able to fully get to right and like you guys did surprise me this last game because like i really expected more trees to go up i'm like i'm gonna be yeah. positioned that anytime someone pops a greenery it'll benefit me and it just didn't happen it's like oh well crap i wish i could have some of those cities back and buy my own stupid trees <laughs> patrick the greatest strength of terraforming mars uh you guys hit on them all i guess I, 
Love the replayability. I'm curious, how many uh, players does it go up to? Five. Five? Okay. I'd be interesting to play it there. I, I, it feels like it's the right amount of balance and everything yeah. and the right amount of play length. Four was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, when we played four, both Ad, well, one Adam was a new player, and so that kind of slowed down the pace of the game a little bit. Just but trying the to... second game went a lot faster. Yeah, the second game did cook. I think I think it really benefits from having more players and like having more people messing with more things. Like yeah, in a three player game, like you guys both kind of ganging up on me, like that's a bummer. But a four player game, like there's another threat out there, yeah. so things get spread out more. And you know, two or three players you know how much time and what possibly could happen in that amount of time, right? So, like, for instance, certain milestones on, like, the heat track will get you extra heat um, production. Uh, and so in a two-player game or a three-player game, you're like, okay, mm-hmm. like, there's no way that somebody is going to bump that up to where the production would be until I go next so I can wait on that. Sure. Whereas in a four- or five-player game you kind of have to grab things when you can because you can't plan on something getting back around to you. So it adds a little bit more urgency to, I need to get stuff on the board because that space might be gone by the time I can play something there. Mm. Um, And so I think it does add a lot more strategy. It doesn't slow down the game a ton as long as people are thinking about what they're going to do on their turns, especially while the last couple of people are going before them. Yeah. Because... More often than not, what people do isn't drastically going to impact your strategy. Um, And so, like, the games, I think, can still go pretty quickly as long as you're focusing on that um, and not, like, just waiting until it's your turn to think about what you're going to do um, in those larger player count games. Definitely. Burns, we both have a couple weaknesses that kind of take place away from the table. So we'll get to those in just a minute. Yeah. Patrick, do you have any weaknesses? Was there anything that this game let you, left you wanting for? Was there any glaring hole in Terraforming Mars? Um, I wouldn't... I'd call this a strength or strength slash weakness. Are there more expansions that you don't own or that we haven't played yet? Yeah, there's, I think, three more expansions that oh, wow. Tom doesn't have. And for clarity, we played with the Prelude expansion, which helps jumpstart your production at the start. Yep. The other expansion I got was a double-sided board, so now there's three different planet surfaces that we could play on, which yep. impacts uh, where you place tiles, the different benefits that you get, and kind of, it does change the way the game is played, because in the standard board, like, you're right around the equator for most of it, with a couple outliers. This game, we were all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, they add a lot of cards. The two that we played with are the ones that most people say are the best ones to add to your collection. The other ones are nice to have. I think there's like a Venus expansion that a lot of people don't like because it just adds weird overcomplications that don't need to be there from what I could understand. I think I've played with all of the expansions like one or two times because, you know, one of Adam Wilson's friends... Um, it's like his favorite game so he has everything for it and so we usually when we get together every now and again we'll play that um you know because he enjoys that game so much um then that sort of like when we're talking about how the board laid out i think that's one of the other really interesting things and kind of the strengths of it like you have this shared space that at the end of the game you can look at and see and then between different games how different sometimes the surface of mars looks Sometimes um, it's just littered with cities, cities literally yes. every open space. Freaking people are like like rabbits down there just <laughs> spreading out everywhere. Um, and that I think that's another strength because it's like all of your work is represented on the board and it's this shared sort of 
this is what we all created together. And that's kind of cool, I think, also. We alluded to the game Tapestry earlier, which is a Stonemeyer game. Um, in that game, like everyone's playing different civilizations, and you kind of weave the yeah. tapestry of the game. Do you think that Terraforming Mars does a better job of telling that shared story of the game as opposed to something like Tapestry? Yeah. Well, so Kind of an it, abstract question, but no. go nuts. <laughs> well, so in Tapestry, like the other cultures that people are, other than like the benefits that they get for it, um, and like the how their um, tapestry cards go up that give them extra items or whatever or extra cultures, cultural abilities. Like it really only affects them. It, it, it impacts you a little bit. And then the map aspect of, of tapestry tends to only interface with one track on the game, um, which is like the, the warfare track. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I, I I think I think Terraforming Mars does a much better job of that shared sort of experience, and you're all kind of building things together and competing for things, um, because all of the aspects of the game flow into that, as opposed to just one aspect of Tapestry does. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, from now on, I'm going to take a picture of the ending board, and we'll do a slideshow every time we get together. Every uh, every OIO like recording, it. it's going to be good. A couple weaknesses for terraforming Mars for me. It looks like it all takes place away from the table. The game itself is great, right? Mm-hmm. Like we enjoyed a lot about the game. For me, the biggest issue with the game involves the components that are involved. You get a huge stack of cards when you open up the game, and they're just like wrapped. Uh, in plastic and no way to store them there is no box there is no like uh, mold (laughs) inside like it's a big pain in the butt and like I use the biggest bag and I just jam all my cards in there I'm like I love this game I should really probably take care of these cards well and and I think along the same line so you have your pile of cards that you're drawing from right and then you're discarding the cards and sometimes it's like it's really complicated it's confusing sometimes like how to manage those two stacks because the discards are supposed to go face down, so people don't know what's in the trash. What's in the trash, right? Um, and so I think that's it. Just after a while, when that stack gets higher than the other one, it's kind of hard to remember which is which. Um, I think like you could probably find, you know, I know they have like dice towers, but I think they also have like towers that you can put like stacks of cards in, mm-hmm. and like that could be an interesting way to track that. So you always pull from you know, the card stack, and then you could probably store the things in there too. So something like that would maybe be a good accessory to get. Granted, it should be included in the box. Exactly. I hate it when you need like an external storage. Like that just drives me crazy. The old Fantasy Flight trench where it's like every game box is the same thing. You just got this trench in the middle and the cardboard thing that comes up and it's like, you should be able to fit everything in here with this. Have at it. For most of our playthroughs of this, I took the role of like lead teacher and guide for this game. But Burns, you've been through the rule book. You've experienced it. Well, what are your thoughts on the rule book and the different uh, art and things that yeah. they use to put this together? So I think the rule book is actually pretty poor. Um, it's it's really hard to go back as a reference when you're looking for what one rule is or what one thing is. Um, I don't I don't think there's an index, is there? I don't think so, no. Yeah, so I, I think that was one aspect of it. I remember the first time we played when it was me and Adam and Mark. And, like there was just aspects where we were stopped for like 20 minutes and each of us had the rules up. One person had the rule book and each of us, the other two of us had the rules up on our phone and we're just like searching through it to try to figure out the answer to this one question. And granted that happens in other games, but it's just like, it's so poorly worded in the rule book and it's like organized sometimes in weird ways. 
Um, and so I think that is definitely a detriment to the game. Um, and then, yeah, the, 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 I won't say graphic design, because I think, like, the symbols and, like, the look of Mars on the board um, and, like, the tracking sheets, like, it all looks good. But, like, the, the illustrations on the cards themselves are, like, goofy to the point. Like, the, the Photoshop on them is so poor in some instances or so goofy. Now, granted, that might actually be a strength because it kind of harkens back a little bit to just, like, sort of the goofiness, um, weird look of, like, Total Recall or other, like, Mars types of things that you maybe have seen on, on TV or movies or in books or something like that. And so so maybe that, that it has, like, it's one of those things where some of the things look so, like, stock photo-y, but it's actually kind of funny, so it actually is a little endearing. But it, it's definitely one of those things where I think a little bit more interesting graphic design or illustrations could go like a long way in making the game just look cooler as a whole, right? Yeah, pay an artist. <laughs> yes. How easy is onboarding Terraforming Mars? Uh, I think that's an interesting niche that we can move yeah. into more with OIO. Like, how easy is this to share a partner with? Like, how easy is it to bring someone along? Patrick, you had never played this game before. How was? How were the first steps in Terraforming Mars for you? Pretty good. I felt quite easy. Um, I felt like I had a good grasp within a few turns, generations, is that what they're called? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, of our first game together, and at least at a basic fundamental understanding mm -hmm. of what to do and could form strategies by the second game. Yeah. I think it's probably heavy for casual gamers, I would feel like. My girlfriend, I don't think, would enjoy this. <laughs> I think there's too many decisions. It's almost the things that I like. It's almost too open for paths to victory mm -hmm. for for at least my girlfriend to, to enjoy this. She'd, she'd be uh, have analysis paralysis every single turn. <laughs> yeah, I intend to share it with Phoenix soon-ish, and uh, I'm really interested to see what she thinks about it. We talked about Sanctum on our Diablo show last month, and similar to Sanctum, Terraforming Mars can feel a little overwhelming at first because everything is on the table from the start. Like, yeah. everything you can do in the game, you can do right out the gate. So without seeing the other players' hands, it's really hard to know how to guide them. Like, yeah. uh, you, you know, you don't know all the tools that are face down so it basically boils down to well try some stuff and then we'll play for real next game yeah. good luck yeah and i think that's the big thing like if someone can go into a game and like whenever i'm learning a new game my approach tends to always be i'm going to probably suck this game if i could do some things that seem smart by the end of it i'll feel good about the yeah. experience and then hopefully the next time i play it i'll be much more competitive and i think I think as long as people are are able to approach the game that way, I think they'll be able to learn it. If you feel like you need to be competitive that first game, it's just it's a little too complicated and it's just too hard to explain and to fully understand all of the interworking parts of the game, you know, coming from scratch. Even if you watched a video about the rules and how how it plays and how it works, you're not going to get the strategies of that unless there's like videos out there of like the top five terraforming Mars strategies and how to use them. <laughs> but I don't know that there's a lot of content for that. And that's not something that I'm ever interested. I tend no. to like going into games like as blind as possible because I like getting the experience for myself. And I and, and, and think that that there's a lot of fun in doing that. Um, so I'll put in whatever effort I need to to try to understand the rules. And if I need to like 
prep a character or prep a deck or something like that. I'll go through the effort to do that, but I'll try to keep myself as blind to a lot of the other things as possible so that I can fully experience it in the moment um, with everybody else that I'm playing with. Because I think that's much more fun than seeing how a game plays on video and then feeling like, well, am I playing it the way that the person did on the video? Um, so, yeah, I don't like that as much. Um, I will also say, though, this gets back to one of my other weaknesses that I didn't mention before. I almost think, especially for new players, that the Prelude expansion is a must. So, you know, getting those two extra cards at the start really helps you and extra resources or production that they grant just really helps to set you off. Because the first time when we played, uh, the first couple games we played without that, and you're like building everything. And granted, we were playing a little bit wrong where we started at zero for everything. Mm -hmm. Trying to build all that production up from scratch was really this took longer <laughs> it just took longer yeah. to get through that aspect of it and prelude really helps to set you down a path and get you kick-started in that direction that would have taken three or three-ish generations probably before that to do um so i would almost say that that's like a must-have to make this game as good as it can be um, and that's a little bit of weakness of the base game then because you shouldn't really have to spend 25 extra dollars to get the real experience of the game. Yeah, I I don't feel as strongly as you. Like, Prelude is good and I enjoy having it in the game, but I'm just a hair below it as a must-have, must-play. Okay. Uh, overall thoughts and takeaways of Terraforming Mars. Patrick, is this uh, going to displace Nemesis as your favorite game of all time? <laughs> I won't displace Nemesis, that's for sure. <laughs> But it's, uh, like I've said, I like this a lot more than I would have expected. Um, generally, when we get together, there are games I'm really excited for, and then just games that I'm willing to play, because it's fun playing games with you guys, and I would have, if bet money, I'd put this in the just general games that I like playing. And it's it's a lot of fun. I love the theme. Um, I love the strategy. Uh, the only possible takeaway or I can think of is, uh, we, we've mentioned a few times, just a bad run of cards can yeah. really f make you disgruntled. Yeah. And that's I that happened to me for half of one game. Yeah. And it's just like, well, hopefully I'll get some better stuff next time. But yeah. it's, it would never deter me from playing this. Like you mentioned, you'd throw this up down on the table right after we got done recording. I would too. This, this is a fantastic game. So same question I asked Tom earlier. Of all the board games that you've played for the podcast what percentile would this be in for the games that we've played for the podcast? So we played Sanctum. We played the Bloodborne board game. Granted, you weren't on that podcast, but you were there yeah, for it. Yeah, I played. Um, we played Aliens Colonial Marines. We did play Nemesis, so we already know that that's above this. Um, uh, Stonemeyer Games, that whole catalog. Oh, yeah, because you were... Was he... He played with us those games. He wasn't on the episode, but yeah. So I don't know. Where does where does Terraforming Mars fall into it, that? It'd probably be number two. Okay. Yeah. I'd put this in number two. Nice. This might be number one for me. Wow. Really? I love this game. We played Scythe for the podcast. Okay, Scythe number one. <laughs> Terraforming Mars number two. Probably Nemesis number three. But like, I'll put it to you this way. I am ready for this game to discorporate so that I can <laughs> grok it in fullness. <laughs> you have not grokked it in fullness yet. Yeah. You'll get there, Tom. Yeah, You'll we, get there. We will after this uh, After this episode. We'll melt it all down and <laughs> make a nice broth. broth yeah. Now, I love this game. I want the fancy edition with all the painted stuff. Like I think this game is just tremendous. The 3D printed stuff is really cool. <laughs> I will say that. 
Uh, Burns, do you have other thoughts and takeaways? Yeah, I, like like a lot of what we already said already. I think it's great. I think this is similar to what I said, but this is actually more serious. Like, if you are a board game fan, like I think you have to play Terraforming Mars a couple of times if you haven't before. Like, this is even much more so than if you're a film fan, you should watch, or an action film fan, you should watch Total Recall. Like, like Terraforming Mars would be in, like, if there was a list of the 10 board games you need to play if you're, like, a hardcore board gamer, like, Terraforming Mars is one of those games. That's interesting, and I would uh, even add that even though Scythe is my favorite game and the game that I cherish uh, in fullness... uh, Terraform Mars, I would agree, is also a must-play. Yeah. I mean, More I, so than my beloved Scythe. I would say Scythe is one of those like top ten games that everybody should play, too. Yeah. Um, and I would, you know, controversial take, I don't know that I would put Gloomhaven in that. Because I don't think, I don't think someone could play Gloomhaven enough to really grok how great it is. <laughs> um to understand why it should be in that top pantheon of games because you would have to play not the whole like scenarios but you'd have to at least play through a character and retire a character so that's asking a bit too much of somebody to say it's a must play sure so terraforming mars it's great we're gonna move on with tom awesome's top five it's time now for Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. As Quaid worked to overthrow the agency on Mars, we learned how important evil corporations are in sci-fi and our everyday life. For our Top 5 today, I'm going to kick it over to Patrick to outline the Top 5 Evil Corporations. Patrick, what are our parameters here? All right, uh, parameters. Let's try to make this as controversial as the Android list. Let me stop you right there. <laughs> the Terminator is a robot. No. He is a robot. He says right in the movie that he's an Android. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen the original Terminator. <laughs> the T-1000, most certainly a robot. He's I made of metal. Parameters. It was, uh, I think it was a humanoid looking. Well... We can roll the tape if we want to get that technical, but I believe I, based on my parameters for my list, he's Tom, an android. Tom will go back and edit it and post what we said on that episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm great at that. The Terminator is a robot. Proceed, Patrick. Uh, let's do it again here. They're evil corporations. They're, I, I hate them generally the most individuals. They're worse than Thanos. <laughs> they're worse than Darth Vader. They're worse than most individual uh, villains, in my opinion. And uh, I tried to skew this towards still active corporations. So things that have gone out of business or changed their names, I left off the list. So no Wayland yutani in this list? It's yep. all real yeah, corporations? Real. Oh real. my god, I didn't okay. think you were going okay. real. Interesting. Real. I was sure that Wayland yutani was going to be number oh, one. Oh no, I, I, I tried to do that. I went with real corporations. So. <laughs> okay. Hopefully I don't lose you some sponsors here. Yeah. Well, if you do, I'll just ask you to up your patronage a little bit. Number one premier Cancel, cancel, cancel. I'm going with the real corporation. <laughs> what about the top five cats? <laughs> Googleplex. Number five. This is, a, this is a personal one right here. I'm a, I'll call them a certain three-letter pharmacy. How about that? This will, avoid, this will avoid any lawsuits. So a certain three-letter pharmacy, 
uh, where my girlfriend worked, <laughs> was robbed at knife point there. Uh, she wanted to take a few days off after that. And they said uh, she had to get proof from a therapist that it was a uh, traumatizing issue. <laughs> And then her boss said, "Oh, I guess you've never worked retail before. Like that's a, like, <laughs> held up at knife point. Like that's a common occurrence. So, yeah. So I held up at knife point. And this is I'm a big fan of like the anti work subreddit. This is just a classic anti work story where you're like, hey, I was robbed at knife point. They told me to be in the next day. <laughs> and she quit after that one. So number five, a certain three letter pharmacy. <laughs> All right, good start. Number five or number four. Uh, Blackstone. You guys familiar with Blackstone? Their investment group? Yeah, a financial company, you mean right? BlackRock? That's the military one, right? No. I think Blackstone is the financial investment group and BlackRock is like the mercenaries. BlackRock is not the mercenaries. Because I, I had a friend that interned with BlackRock. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well, we'll go... We'll go with the investment group, whichever okay. one it is. Whichever Although the, the mercenaries would probably make the list if we were, <laughs> if we were still in like uh, the Middle East conflict. So what's wrong with what's wrong with this company? Uh, anyone who follows the news on the housing crisis, that's like one of their main investment avenues lately. Is uh, uh, to simplify it, they would prefer it if there were no homeowners except them. And uh, the rest of America rented from them. That's uh, how I felt about terraforming Mars. It's not a winning strategy. They shouldn't do that. Yeah, that's right. So they they have a lot of advantages. Uh, People gang up on them. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who's tried to buy a house recently, uh, th this group is they're a competitor. And one of the big advantages they have is they can buy homes for cash. Yeah. Virtually instantly, where almost everybody else has to get approved for a loan, mm -hmm. you know, they have to uh, have the other party accept, and they can just, you know, as, as housing prices go up, they just beat you to the punch in that area, yeah. and then they start, you know, raising rents there. As housing prices go down and markets suck, they just start buying cheap houses for cash and renting those out, and they're, they own a, uh, a sig well, they'll argue not a significant portion of the market, they'll just say, you know, we only own a few percent of homes, but that's huge. <laughs> That's huge in my opinion. And they're going to, I think, keep doing that. And that will be a problem for years to come. Yeah, it doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> well, you've got your house now. Yeah, Hang I'm pretty well set. <laughs> Number five, a pharmacy. Number four, Black something financial group. <laughs> I think it's Blackstone. Okay, number three. <laughs> this is a two for one. Uh, Bayer Pharmaceuticals. Bayer Pharmaceuticals also owns Monsanto. So this is a two-for-one here. Bayer, not to bring the mood down, uh, Bayer helped design chemicals for the gas chambers during World War II. That's yeah, that's real, bad. Yeah. That's a real bear. Yeah. <laughs> and then Monsanto, anyone who watches any uh, food corporation documentaries, they... Uh, Again, just classic yeah. evil Genetically corporation. Genetically modified organisms in, in like plants, right? Is what Monsanto does. Yes. Right? Yeah. GMO plants. And it's this uh, almost constant arms race between the plants they design and the uh, insects slash funguses that kill those plants. So they will they'll, you know, make a new uh, fungi resistant plant. Nature adapts. <laughs> So they, they become stronger, which then 
almost forces people to use Monsanto plants because other natural plants aren't as uh, protected against these things that are evolving to feast on Monsanto crops. And they had, they had other uh, like big lawsuits where uh, their seeds from their plants were blowing into other people's farms. And so they would have, you know, 3% Monsanto pest-resistant plants in their farms. So Monsanto started, like, suing small farmers, <laughs> saying, where, where are you getting these seeds from? Like, oh, <laughs> things geez. like that. Yeah. So... Again, I think they're going to, that's another one. They're going to keep doing that because it's a winning business model for them uh-huh. until all plants are Monsanto plants or we yeah. have like they a. They all uh, plants just like me. Or a Last of Us <laughs> fungus plague that they create. <laughs> something be. like that. That could be. And you were right. Blackstone. So there's a Blackstone, which is like real estate investment. Okay. And there's a Black Rock, which is like stock investing hedge fund type of thing. Oh, okay. So that's where I was confused. So I thought right. it was Blackstone. You're right. You're right. Good. The other one's probably really evil, too. No, I mean, they're making money off the stock market, so just that's, moderately evil. That's, they're yeah, capitalistic that's evil, okay. which is, like, on the spectrum. You know, that's, like, an okay evil, it's according gray, to America. It's in the gray area <laughs> yeah, of evil. Yeah, yeah, it's, like, chaotic neutral. Yeah, there you go. Capitalistic evil, you know. Perfect. <laughs> Number five, pharmacy. Number four, Blackstone Financial. Number three, Monsanto. Number two. Okay. I'm going to add a parameter here. And this is a nod to uh, where we're about to discuss Stranger in a Strange Land. Okay. There's a uh, there's a scene where Jubal, who's one of the main characters, he meets with like a uh, religious leader or cult leader, depending yeah. on your opinion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and they leave, and he says the the scariest thing is that I liked him. Uh huh. <laughs> so we're gonna get into ones that are popular, and I think that that makes them kind of evil. Okay. So, uh, number two, I'm going to go with Nestle. Nestle. <laughs> Nestle. I thought you were doing something religious without no. Nestle. <laughs> no. Because, well, because nobody's, I mean, I don't think people hear Nestle and be like, oh, screw Nestle. Like you're talking about, <laughs> like you're talking about uh, Bezos or Facebook or something. No. Nestle. Why do you hate Nestle? <laughs> Nestle's currently in a lawsuit for using child slaves <laughs> to har- harvest cocoa. In uh, third world countries, <laughs> like, and I, I only read the news story. I wish, I wish I could see like footage of the court case, because it's it's legit child slaves, and I forget the country suing Nestle. So I want to see them. <laughs> their lawyers probably don't let them speak, but I would just love to see child slaves going up there and talking about their their job at Nestle. So uh, the way I can understand it is that they are working with a company that has these child workers then? Is that what it is? So it's like this company that they're contracting with that's harvesting the cocoa? Or is it like Nestle owns the company that owns yeah, the Yeah, the, the, the contractor is, okay, is okay. how they get around it. it and this, it, this happens yeah, yeah. In, oh, yeah, everywhere. with every yeah. major U.S. clothing industry and yeah. food industry and all this. They, they contract with somebody to avoid responsibility mm-hmm. but yeah they're child slaves are suing nestle for <laughs> better working conditions that's interesting i thought that maybe you're gonna take the angle that uh sugar is like killing humanity well this is a uh, three-pronged attack do they get free quick and that that's how they're paid <laughs> they, or something they get like that? paid and quick <laughs> 
and it's not even a good wage in quick. Yeah. It's, well, and, and they don't get the milk to go with it, so they just have to either mix it in water or just eat it. Eat as it powder. dry. Yeah. yeah. Yep. They eat it dry. And then you just cough every time. Yeah. <laughs> there. This is a this is a trident of evil here because they have. <laughs> <laughs> so. Child slavery, bad. Uh, what are the other prongs of the trident? <laughs> uh, one I just heard from my mom. She uh, contributing to the podcast here. <laughs> She's a like uh, to the point of a obsessiveness is kind of a food health nut. Okay, loves chocolate. However, um, again, I don't think you should get sued by this. She uh, she reads a magazine called Nutrition Action monthly or weekly. And according to that, they ranked like the chocolate, and Nestle was found to have the most arsenic of any major chocolate brand within its product, according to my mother. So, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. <laughs> On arsenic and arsenic chocolate. is one of those things where if you have trace amounts of it over time, don't you become like, don't you become like more immune to it? So if somebody tried to poison you with arsenic. Nestle actually helped to prevent your death, right? Or is it the opposite way around where over time, if you have too much of it, you die? You, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't remember not a doctor. You could be making a case for, like, the uh, the Princess Bride scene. <laughs> if you have questions about how much arsenic you can take in, ask Premier Health at PremierHealthMN.com. They'll probably say zero, I'm gonna, but I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a clinician. I can't tell you that. But. <laughs> Well, if you need a cleanse, we got a great recommendation for the Logan technique. <laughs> <laughs> so the three prongs of evil for the Nestle Corporation are slave labor, uh, arsenic, and was sugar the other one? Uh, sugar's not the other one. Oh. oh. I, well, that one's, I don't know. That one seems obvious. I like going with things that people don't so know. So it's a pitchfork. We evolved from we can, trying we can to add a, Yeah, we can call it a pitchfork. The pitchfork it's of very, evil. It's very fitting. We're getting our pitchforks out. Why know? is a trident a respectable weapon on the battlefield, but a pitchfork is for peasants? You know? You're just adding one more prong. It's because a god used a trident no, to use a pitchfork. It's the suppression of the poor people. Like, poor people use pitchforks. <laughs> Tridents for, are for King of Atlantis. <laughs> So the, the third prong of this. <laughs> the third prong. Okay. Uh, they just, uh, they're also known for uh, uh, claiming water rights. And again, this is in third world countries. It's not the U.S. But they, like Nestle owns the water in, in I well, forgot the list. I think we figured out how they, uh, they're making that quick now. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so there you go. So they, and they, they, they make it illegal for like, and again, these are third world countries, but for locals to uh, collect rainwater. Because they've literally bought water rights in a country. And many countries have finally fought back. But any uh, country where there's uh, corrupt officials, uh-huh. they'll just sell Nestle, the country's water rights, for $5 million. And make it illegal to collect rainwater. So That's wild. Yeah, that's like the, yeah. that's like the next level from just naming a stadium. <laughs> it's like this yes. is the Nestle Aquifer yes, in Venezuela. Yes. <laughs> it's not mentioned on TV a lot, but probably more lucrative. Yeah, probably. Wow, this uh, this list is pretty impressive, Patrick. <laughs> Before we get to number one, do you have any honorable mentions? Uh, I do have one honorable mention. Is just it's a little vague, 
There wasn't one specific company, but I'll go with everyone's internet service provider. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll jump on it with you on that. Yeah. One. CenturyLink actually isn't bad. That, I have a price locked in forever. It's good. Uh, they did just force me to upgrade service because I was having all these outages, which for <laughs> someone who plays a lot of stuff online for his podcast is a major pain in the sure. butt and also works remotely when he works. Uh, so like, <laughs> there are some challenges, but I don't know. CenturyLink is all right. Okay, uh, I rate is about as good as you can hope for with an ISP. They they tend to have monopolies or borderline monopolies. They have Comcast, Verizon, ATT, like the rest of them could all burn. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you there. They tend to have bulls BS deals yeah. <laughs> where they you know they'll have uh, advertised prices yeah. for for internet, which is really all most people want. But they'll say, oh well, that's if you bundle it with a landline, uh-huh. which nobody wants. Which right. that advertising should be illegal in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> With you there. All right. Well, that's a pretty good honorable mention. Recapping list. Number five, a three-letter pharmacy. Number four, Blackstone Financial. Number three was... Uh, Bayer slash Monsanto. Yeah, Bayer Monsanto. And number two was Tridents. Nestle. <laughs> Nestle, <laughs> the, the trident, trident of evil. <laughs> Wielded by Nestle. The number one most evil corporation, Patrick. Oh, man. I hate to say it. I hate to say it here. I'm going with Disney. Everybody, <laughs> Disney. Yes. Interesting. No Bezos on this list. That's interesting. You know why is Disney so evil, Patrick? It's, uh, it's oh, where again. like dreams are made. It's where <laughs> dreams come true, right? And that's why it's it's really <laughs> skewed by that uh, stranger in a strange land parameter. Like generally, most people love Disney, and that makes them able to inject their evil <laughs> into the world, especially children. And so, having lived in Florida, I, I heard a lot of stories down there. I know people who worked at Disney. There were things like, "You're not allowed to, you're only allowed to smile," which sounds innocuous. It sounds like maybe that's a nice experience for the guests, but like as an employee, like think how awful that is. Hmm. Like you're not allowed to just have a resting face for eight <laughs> hours a day. Disney has, there are food shelves set up specifically for only Disney employees because they aren't paid enough to survive. <laughs> so there are Disney employee-only food shelves. Well, because they, they get around that by saying that, you know, working at Disney is an experience. And it's like something that, it's like a lot of what, it's like interning. Only I was going to say, not, yeah. But that's how they get around that stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they treat it as an internship, which is... They've made illegal pretty much everywhere, right? <laughs> because those are bad for employees. So they got rid of those. Um, they've they they are just well, people will maybe even you guys will disagree in the direction they're taking a lot of not just popular IPs. So the they're killing Star Wars. Wars. They're ruining Star Wars. <laughs> well, they're, they're ruining. <laughs> Trident with tree of evil with chocolate, yeah. uh, you know, buying yeah. all the homes. Yeah. Screw that. They're ruining. Star They're ruining Wars. Star Wars. They now own Aliens, which I'm terrified about, which may probably sways my opinion here a little bit. They're ruined. They, I just terrified of what they're gonna do with Aliens. Um, they ruin. They own. They. I feel like they ruined History Channel. They own History Channel. <laughs> They used to have history on there, and now it's just Pawn Stars and that, stuff. I mean, that started long before Disney. <laughs> Was it? Them. Yeah. I didn't check the timeline. Yeah, I, I think so. All but, right, I'll take your word for it. But. 
Uh, I have a company that I want to throw some shade at. Aramark. Are you guys familiar with Aramark? They run concessions for a large part of the sporting industry, and especially yeah. in the minor leagues. I went to and a Saints game. They run food courts in, like... Food courts in, in malls, they also run, like, the... They run food in, like, universities and stuff like that, too. Like, they'll be the ones that that do, like, the uh, residence hall cafeterias and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my, my bone with them is specifically around sports. Went to a Saints game last weekend, $15 for a beer. $15 for a beer. Like, crazy. <laughs> and, like, so Aramark is just, like, getting loaded. That's, you know, God bless them for finding a way to extract... $15 from a very cheap person. <laughs> uh, but it's it's interesting. Like, I go to an NFL game, and, like, I know everything's going to be expensive at a Vikings game. And that mm-hmm. just happens from the ticket to parking. Like, everything's expensive. But, like, the NFL has academies in Africa where they're scouting for talent and giving potentially life-changing opportunities to people. The Saints ain't doing that. Aramark certainly is not doing that. So, like, that $15 is going right into the evil overlord's pocket. It's like... Yeah. Well, no longer... I was going to say Bill Murray, but it's no longer Bill Murray. Nope. They uh, sold, sold out, out this last offseason. Yeah. So it's the new people are the ones that are jacking the prices. Well, it's not, even, it's not even the Saints. They contract... Uh, if they work like most minor league teams around the country, they contract with Aramark to run all the concessions. So the Saints will get a cut of that. So sure, they want the prices to be high so that they get their share. But like mostly that is going into Aramark's corporate overlord's pocket, who is my enemy, my sworn enemy for life. Now, I feel like I have to mention Do it. a corporation. Um, and maybe this will lead as an interesting segue into the next topic. So my organization... Um, worst organizations in the world would be the Catholic Church because all, all I'm going to have to say is you just have to watch I think the movie is called Spotlight about the investigation into the like priest sex scandal <laughs> in like the 90s and 2000s um, that right there Anytime that someone is saying that they are peddling the word of God and then they're taking advantage of large amounts of people and using that power in very terrible ways, I think they definitely deserve to be on the list. Oh, yeah. Especially as someone that grew up Catholic. Perfect addition. I, I guess focused on corporations, but uh, <laughs> if you expand beyond that, they're, they're a heavy hitter. They're on the, on the Mount Rushmore for sure. <laughs> <laughs> So there you have it, the top five most evil corporations <laughs> with a bonus grenade thrown in by both Burns and myself. Yeah, I bet everybody has a bonus grenade. Probably. Yeah. Well, you can share them on Twitter at TopsidLogic, O-Y-O. <laughs> you sure you want that coming to your Twitter? Yeah, no one's going to write anything. It's fine. <laughs> For our final topic today, we're going to discuss the novel Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein. This also, ironically, released on June 1st, way back in 1961. So kudos to you if you're listening to this podcast on launch day. Yeah, it's like the the, the celebration of both fine Martian mm-hmm. works. Now we need to see if somehow Terraforming Mars released on June 1st some year. Like, that would be kind of crazy. I doubt it did, but... It didn't. I Googled it, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's too Anyways, Stranger... It was worth a shot. Totally. Totally. Stranger in the Strange Land won the Hugo Award, the annual literary award for best science fiction or fantasy works of the previous year. It's awarded each year at the World Science Fiction Convention. Stranger in a Strange Land follows Michael Valentine Smith, the first human being born on Mars. Michael comes to Earth and is promptly stashed away by the Federation government. A nosy reporter pokes at the government until he is captured and similarly stashed away. 
one of Michael's nurses breaks him out of the jail hospital and squirrels him away to a doctor lawyer named Jubal Harsha. <laughs> Jubal fights the government to secure Michael's freedom and to secure him from the pressures of an immense inheritance. Michael starts to learn about human culture. We get to learn about Martian culture, which has enabled Michael to perform superhuman feats, like completely regulate his body, teleport items, and instantly banish things to the void for all time. From there, Michael travels the world and discovers the essence of human nature. Michael opens his own religion, teaching followers Martian and how to perform similar feats. And then eventually Michael takes on the government and all established religion. Stranger in a Strange Land. Patrick, you are a fan of Robert E. Heinlein, right? Like we mentioned Starship Troopers, the movie earlier. You love, you love Starship Troopers. Like, have you read that book as much as you've seen Total Recall? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm one of the weirdos who like absolutely love both the movie and the book because they're quite different mm -hmm. and so you know fans of one or the other generally hate the other but I, yeah i saw the movie when it come out when it came out loved the movie picked up the book immediately loved the book um even though it's quite different so they i went on a bit of a uh, Heinlein binge and uh Heinlein mainline yes oh. mainline it, yeah i read stranger in a strange land and uh time enough for love and number of the beast hoping they would all be starship troopers and they uh -huh. were not <laughs> i was uh, originally very disappointed by stranger in a strange land but i, I guess so of we'll... course you put it up for the podcast <laughs> you put up your favorite book of all time the silmarillion and we crapped all over that because it was terrible well isn't that the irony like i loved that book and put it up and it was a slog to get through and now i thought this one is pretty mediocre i'll throw this one up and uh I think it will do much better than Silmarillion. <laughs> well, it's, it's all about expectations, right? Yeah, right. So there's that too. Like going in, it's like, okay, Pat was pretty lukewarm about this. So I guess <laughs> we'll see how this book is. But it's also the expectations of you read Starship Troopers first. You love Starship Troopers. Mm. Which I imagine is very action-based. Yeah. And so then you start reading other books by the guy hoping that they're the same type of yeah. thing and they're not. And this Correct. is not action-based. This is <laughs> At all. very <No>. slow. <laughs> Um, Burns and I, neither one of us had read any Heinlein, right? Correct. This was also my first one. Uh, quick side note, we do plan on doing a Starship Troopers show next year. We'll talk more about the format, but I think watch all the movies that came out and read the book. Oh, yeah. Should be pretty interesting. <laughs> uh, the first phase of Stranger in a Strange Land is Michael in the Hospital. Bernsey, where did you think this book was going as Ben, the reporter, first started poking at the government? Like, he is fighting to meet the man from Mars who nobody has any public access to. Yeah, I mean, long term, I really wasn't positive where... I, I didn't really... I couldn't really think of where I thought the story was going to go. The only two things I was pretty sure about, which ended up being true, was that Jill was going to help him break out of the hospital and then that Ben was going to get captured by the government because of the way he was going about things. And and those two things ended up working out, you know, exactly as I expected. Um, but otherwise, like once it got past that point, I really didn't know what to expect um, and, and was surprised still. So. And Patrick, you obviously knew it was coming because you'd read the book before. What were your impressions of Michael's time in the hospital? It's, uh, they just kind of, overplay the uh, fish out of water aspect of the story and i guess that's a theme theme throughout the entire book yeah. but uh yeah he's well it, he is a fish out of water yeah. he, he's a human being but he's raised by martians he's never seen earth he's never talked to another human being before like i think the book did a really interesting job of like showing just how 
foreign. Literally everything was to him. Brinzi, you've been on the record on the show as talking about how horrible the English language is just as <laughs> a language. Yeah. Like, imagine trying to pick that up for the first time when you don't know any words no, or anything. No, I mean, yeah, it's it's complicated. You know, and the reason why it's easier for babies to learn a language is because they're immersed in it and, like, our brains absorb things better at that age. Um, and granted, you know, I guess this technically is his infancy phase because he's, like, reborn into Earth, basically. He is just um, an egg. Yeah. So that's exactly what a lot of this is, you know, because each of these sections of the book are kind of, like, these sections of his life. Yeah, so that is... should really be emphasized. Like, he's he's very, very infant-like, <clears throat> like, for... Speaks very plainly. At least half the book, yeah. Every custom and vision he's never seen before and is confused by it and can't communicate what he's thinking and can't can barely understand what people are saying to him so that's that's a major theme in this so this first section is really focused on world building you meet yeah. mike you learn about how the federation is like the alliance of all earth cultures how we've moved to space how space rights work in different things which sets up <laughs> his money yeah uh, the end which of the is big as well like he basically owns mars based on earth law yeah so that's that's why he's a, he's a major focus of the news and the the government on Earth. And because of his his parentage, he also owns large chunks of like I think it was like the lunar <laughs> lunar company, industries, yeah. lunar industries, and like some other company too. And so like he falls into this massive amount of like money that he's that he's owed basically which is another part of the reason why the government's so interested in him yeah so they snatch him up right away at the end of the first section of the book jill breaks him out of uh hospital jail uh and in that sequence you learn that michael has some exceptional powers like somebody punches jill and then they disappear and like they are gone gone forever so i was like oh well michael can do some stuff bernsey your first thoughts on when michael's powers were revealed um, I mean, so I, I figured there was going to be some aspect of, of mental powers, mind powers or whatever. I was um, surprised because he's, he's a human being. I expected like a regular dude. So I was, I, I expected there was going to be something like that, not to the point where he just could make things disappear, right? Uh, or discorporate. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's, that was something that kind of went to that next level um, and surprised me a bit. Because um, I figured there was going to be some form of power that he had that normal humans wouldn't have based upon, like, him being raised on as a Martian for some... Somehow, I, you know, and and it was something that I was curious if they were ever going to try to, like, fully describe as the book went on. They kind of do a little bit, at least, you know, enough so that you get the idea of what it is that is allowing them to do that. Um I, I think it would have been interesting to get maybe a little bit more on that aspect of it as time went on. But I thought it was really interesting. It was a really good hook, especially for the end of the first section. Um, Patrick, having already read this book before, what did you think of the ramp up of how they revealed all the things that Michael was capable of? Um, it's it's pretty good. It's it's very it slows down quite a bit at times. Mm-hmm. Not just the beginning, but uh, uh, throughout the entire book. So it'll. I don't know. It's almost sawtoothed, in my opinion. It'll ramp up really well and then just stall out for a bit, where there's just tons and tons of dialogue. Yeah. And then ramp up again. So, if if you've got the time, I think it was great. Mm-hmm. I think one of the other interesting aspects of that is, you know, the guy he made disappear. You know, wasn't like a major player in the government, but he was like 
you know, someone that people refer to. And then everybody's just thinking like, oh, he just, he's slacking off. or He's, he's like yeah. somehow like undermining us or whatever. And it's like, no, he, he's just gone. But it's so funny to hear like everybody else referring to this other guy and just being like, oh, well, what the, where the heck did he go? You know, and what's he doing? How, how could he do this to me? I thought he was like a good supporter of me. Kind of like what Douglas kind of, I think it said at one point or something like that. Well, it's interesting. Jubal also tries calling that dude to try to get to Douglas. <laughs> yes. But it doesn't exist anymore. Yep. The next phase yes. of the book, uh, I forget what it's actually called, but I wrote down Hang with Jubal. Uh, Patrick mentioned the sort of sawtooth pacing of this book. In the second phase, there are a lot of pages and very little action. It's all about uh, Michael getting acclimated to human culture at Jubal's compound, where he has secretaries, a live-in, like, electrician, and uh, he has his own little, like, core group commune, of people. Kind his of own thing. little commune. Yep. Great word for it. <laughs> Um, Patrick, your impressions of Mike's time with Jubal and as he starts to learn about human culture. Uh, like I said, it, it's, a, it's a large, slow section. Uh, there are a lot of theories in this that Jubal is just uh, Heinlein in the book, speaking his own views right. on society. Yeah, on society, kind of, on the world. I kind of assumed that that was the case. Yeah, yeah. I've, I don't know if that's true. I've, as a fan, I've read that before. As similar things with yeah. Starship Troopers. He's kind of just uh, you know spewing his thoughts on society through through the lens of someone who, who's never experienced it. And it, so, um, if, from that aspect, I think it's really interesting. He'll he'll, he'll attack a lot a lot of societal norms, and just say, why would you teach? Why would you teach him this thing? You know, he's a blank slate. Why would you teach him these bad aspects of society? Just just focus on the good ones. And, the you know, the, the flip side is he's, he needs to learn to be normal yeah. and blend in. Um, and then, Which we all need to do, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a good question, right? Because you have to be able to function in society. Sometimes <laughs> that's yeah. not the right path. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's really the main theme of what he explores here, and I think he just gets deeper and deeper into that throughout the book. This was probably my favorite section of the book, which is probably like you. <laughs> it's probably the opposite of that, but I found a lot of this like really interesting, and the whole sort of teaching someone how to like walk and run from like a societal standpoint, yeah. I, I think it is, it's just, it's interesting to me. Um, and then I think Jubal's character is a really interesting character and kind of like his setup. Uh, Cause he's like, he's your prototypical kind of Renaissance man that he's a doctor lawyer and his main job is he's a writer. Um, and he writes underneath like a bunch of different pseudonyms, all sorts of different types of things. And you know, he's so prolific at creating things that he basically just has these different secretaries and then calls them out one by one and tells them, all right, this is the story, starts dictating it. Once that one's done, he calls the next one up and then, you know, starts telling them this other story that's completely different about something completely different. And I just, I don't know. A lot of that stuff is just super fascinating. And then seeing the bits and pieces that Michael picks up from him and from the people around him and how he's trying to put that together to understand what Earth is mm -hmm. um, and what humans are, um, I, I think is just a really neat aspect of the story that then as time goes on and you see him later on in the story, you get like payoffs of that 
Yeah. Yeah, those other aspects too, which I think is I think I think it's really neat how that sets all of these things up. Um, and there's <clears throat> there's still some action aspects of that section that I think are really good. You know, for instance, they Michael is a very important political asset, and so the government comes to get him back, and yeah. they like send an invasion force to Jubal's home, and uh, Mike just. <laughs> Warps them all away, just <laughs> discorporates them all, and then Jubal has to teach him that you can't just kill police officers indiscriminately. Well, and <laughs> I think my one of my favorite aspects of that whole thing is that Jubal is more mad that they keep landing on his flower bushes than anything. <laughs> like, I think that's one of the funniest things. But it, I think it also shows with him how confident he is in like handling situations, right? Like. He knows he's going to get out of this just fine, or at least he's putting on the front that he knows he can get out of this just fine and that he can protect everybody around him. So he's most worried about the flower bed that's getting crushed <laughs> by the big like uh, space police vehicles that are that are landing on his on his lawn. Um, and I, I don't know. I just I found that that was a really interesting aspect of of his character that came out through this section um, and then how that turned into the summit that they had that was the summit between earth and Mars and then him politically aligning with different people, um, letting them sit on, uh, on Michael's side of the table, the Mars side of the table to help draw like these alliances between these powerful people. I thought was like super interesting to sort of watch play out as it went. Yeah. yeah. This whole section I think is designed to show like how competent Jubal is and how intelligent he is. Cause there's things like that. There's the whole, there, again, it went a little long, but pages yeah. and pages of just, he's telling Jill how he knows Ben is, was missing, right? Uh-huh. And not just off, off yeah. on his own assignment. And it's, it's just, well, you know, this is how this uh, communication device works. Uh-huh. But I had an investigator go here, and he found out it was really sent from here at this time. And why would he send it from there at this time if he was actually over here at this time? And it's just, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's almost uh, not quite a detective story. But uh, more of a battle of wits with uh, kind of unseen forces. Yeah. Yeah. Just to just show, you know, how on top of the, the ball he is. It's really interesting, the summit that Bernsey mentioned, because eventually Michael has to face the government. And yeah. like they have to establish his inheritance. They have to establish his place on Earth. And Jubal, he, uh, he manipulates the entire system to defy the government at every single step. And there's like a supreme leader. Uh, I forget what Douglas's Douglas. title was. Was he chancellor? Or? Uh, he's not chancellor. I can't remember either. Yeah. <laughs> but he was like the supreme leader of Earth. So Jubal's trying to get him on the phone. And you get to learn all about the bureaucracy that's in place <laughs> yes. in the Federation government, yeah. which is really interesting and funny. And watching Jubal try to smash through that. And then the alliances that he forms on site and how he's thinking on the fly to work everything in his favor to position Mike as the king of Mars, which by Earth law he was. Uh, and then just leveraging all of that to form a relationship with Douglas to basically extract Mike from his money and get him out from make him a less important political aspect so that he could live a life. That mm-hmm. was yeah. a huge part of that section. I thought it was fascinating how they set it up and it was a great payoff for it. Yeah. No, I, I think a hundred percent. And, and the, the, you know, the fact that he set it up in the perfect way possible for it to work. Yeah. I mean, just shows like how smart he is, how connected he is, how much he just understands like everything around him. Which is, which is what always makes it interesting that you have him on the one side that fully understands the culture 
and society and how it works and has a full knowledge of everything earth related. And then you have Mike, who's the complete opposite of that. That's first sponging it up from the books and then sponging it up from what everybody's doing around him. And then what he can learn from, from Jubal, which I don't know. I just, it's really, it's a, it's a cool dichotomy that they use to build off of. Um, and as the book goes on, you get the understanding of like how important that was to Mike, right? Uh, which I think is a really good payoff down the line as the book continues. Well, and that's an important theme. They call it uh, Water Brothers, which yes. is a, a huge important <clears throat> ceremony in Mars. We're just sharing water with someone that I, people of Earth, of course, don't appreciate. Yeah. But yeah, Mike and Jubal become Water Brothers. Uh, Mike and Jill do early as well. Yeah. Uh, she's a brother as well because they don't have gender on Mars, yep. so she just Mike just calls them all brother, mm -hmm. and so yeah, there's just a ton of. Uh, but Jill's his little brother, yeah. which is <laughs> you know her favorite moniker that he gives her. Yeah, and it's it's there's a lot of humorous moments too that I don't want to uh, yeah. uh, pass over, but just things like uh, when Mike sends people to the void, he calls it wasting food. Yes, and he like. <laughs> And again, it's it's just completely different cultures, right? Like, people should be eaten on yeah. Mars, and he just feels bad for wasting food, and he's apologetic. And <laughs> well, it's that it's one of the core differences between the Martian society that Heinlein uh, put together for us. They, when they die, they discorporate, but their spirits are still uh, around and like running society. And the way you cherish that person and understand them fully is you eat them. And when Mike talks about uh, grokking someone, like when a person close to him dies like he expects to eat them to fully understand them and that is just you know horrifying for those of us who <laughs> right, were raised right. on earth yeah. yeah and it's like a great honor to be like the greatest honor yeah and he says multiple times like you know if, if you die I, I hope to eat you and if I die I would be honored if you ate me <laughs> They plant two more really important seeds in this phase of the book. Uh, Mike tries to understand religion, mm -hmm. and he just has a hard time grasping it because there's so many different religions. And through that, you learn that Jubal has an interesting take on religion. Like he doesn't really believe; he finds it hard to believe that any one religion is right. It's like if a god really needs to be worshipped, why would they allow all of these different relation or all of these different religions to grow up and compete with each other? And that's like. I'm really largely aligned on that. Like I'm Christian, I guess in my own beliefs, but it's like, you know, there's a lot of options out there. Like, how do I know that I'm on the right team? And I just thought that was really interesting for a central character of the book to be so closely aligned with me. Yeah, I would, I would agree. And I'm, I'm, we're probably very similar. Um, I honestly don't think about religion a lot. I'd probably be an agnostic, which sounds like is about what Jubal is. But uh, I don't know if he was intentionally going for metaphors with like raising a child, but there's a, there's a scene where they, they go to the church for the mm -hmm. first time and uh, uh, I forget the church leader's name, but he gets Mike alone. And Digby. Digby. Digby, yeah. yeah. Archbishop Digby, I think, yeah. Yeah, and, and Jill wants to go get him and Jubal just kind of says, you know, Mike's got to be able to make this decision for himself. And it, it kind of reminded me of like confirmation, which <laughs> I was uh -huh. so excited when my parents said, hey, it's up to you now. You can go or not go. I'm like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> I don't know if he was going for an analogy like that, but that's that's what I felt when I read that chapter. <laughs> I think like my personal take on it is religion is humans trying to understand 
like how this all goes together, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, because it's a complex question, there's hundreds, thousands of different answers as to how it all goes together yep. and what the right answer is. Um, and I don't know. I feel like religion is where the good things that kind of come from spirituality go to die, be warped, <laughs> and be transmuted into basically the worst aspects of people. Because, hey, if I'm going to have this power over you to impart this word to you, I'm going to take advantage of it as much as possible. Um, so, I don't know. I probably have, I don't know, I guess maybe I have a little bit of a cynical view of religion. <laughs> Sounds like it, yeah. Um, yeah. Checks out. Which which is interesting because it was like after I graduated from high school, or I, I applied to go to two colleges. I applied to the U of M to just do, I don't know, learn whatever and, you know, graduate with whatever. I didn't know what I really wanted to do as a career at that point. Um, or it was to go to St. Mary's in Winona and go to seminary. So it was like, <laughs> I was like that close between, you know, going to be a priest, a Catholic priest. Um, Father Burns. Father Burns. <laughs> um, you know, because church at that point in my life was very important. Um, as I've grown older, um, I think spirituality is still important. And I think there's aspects to a lot of things um you know, that makes sense. But um, similar to Mike, I feel like a lot of the religions, there's a lot of wrongness there. Um, yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's all focused upon separating out. Like, it's always focused on the differences instead of focusing on the similarities, um, which I think is part of the problem. And so where the book goes and like the conclusions it draws um i find super interesting super fascinating big orgy guy huh? no 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 that, <laughs> we could talk about that yeah. aspect once we get to it but uh it's fine love is love man i think i i seriously think i i seriously would align with kind of that viewpoint and the the picture that that does the book draws um also yeah that was very elegantly said burns Thank well you. done. Father Burns. Father Burns. <laughs> Phase two ends with Mike having sex for the first time, and they never <laughs> explain with who. Like, uh, at some point they say that it wasn't um, that it wasn't Jill, which I think most of us probably assumed was the case, but Mike has sex, and it changes him literally forever. We move on to Phase three. Now Michael Valentine Smith is out in the world. Uh, some time passes, and it come, the scene comes up on a carny uh, <laughs> yeah. at a fair, and Mike is now a carny and jill is a part of his act and he's using his powers to like lift jill up as like a magician and you basically walk in and he's getting fired because his act doesn't have enough pizzazz to it <laughs> he's not a showman which is it's so funny because he's doing legitimate like levitation yes. magics disappearing tricks um but because he's not selling it in the right way people are picking it apart and looking at the things that are fake about it when they're actually not <laughs> fake, which I think, I think is, I think it's really funny, but it also says a lot about any of that stuff. Like you can be really good at something, but if you can't actually sell it, like you're probably yeah. not good at that. Like th that's like the weird way our society views some of those things. Like you could be the best writer, but if you don't market that writing to people, like 
what are you, right? You could you could be one of the best athletes, but if a, <laughs> if a scout doesn't see you, you're not going to play in the big leagues. You're not going to play for uh, a college. Uh, we hit on that, I think, with Schwarzenegger, right? I think he got elected because he's a popular yeah. kind of uh, uh, you know yep. fun guy when he's speaking, and yeah. a lot of a lot of other politicians are just kind of uptight. Uh-huh. <laughs> Do the yell one more time, Patrick. Brinza, you mentioned in the show notes that this section threw you for a loop. What stood out to you about Mike's experiences out in the world? So it wasn't that aspect of it because I did like, like I said, I I liked the aspect of how, you know, he's like the previous chapter was his adolescence and then ends in his coming of age. Right. And now this is him like basically after high school trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life. You know, so this is like the early 20s, uh, late teens you know, who am I? What can I do? And he's not just a carny. They also talk about some of the other adventures he's been on. Like, they're basically just vagabonds. Michael yep. and Jill are out in the world trying different things, doing different jobs, uh, always finding a way to get by because they have the huge inheritance and turns out Michael can, like, rig anything. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and you get that at the end of the previous section where they go to the Fosterites and they have uh, slot machines there and he brings it so that they win a jackpot like three times in a row and Jill's like Mike stop <laughs> <laughs> and that's, it's, it was really just he wasn't doing it to take advantage of them it was just he was trying to figure out how the machine worked and he's like oh I can make it through this and that's one of my favorite I, again I'm I'll call it a metaphor. I don't know if Heinlein was going for that intentionally, but you can tell Heinlein is not a fan of religion as well. And the reason they've added that is they're just saying, basically, religion is using the same old tricks they've always used, uh-huh. but just for a modern era. So now they've got slot machines. Yeah, bars. It, yeah, bars in the church. Uh-huh. You know, a slot machine just seems like a, a play off the, uh, I forget the exact phrase, but, you know, you, you give money to the church and you'll be paid back tenfold. And now they have just literal slot machine in there. Where you could get paid back tenfold (laughs) instantly. So much better than having to wait until you die. Yeah, I love little little bits like that that they add. But so those were the aspects that worried me about where, like, the story was going. Because I was worried that he was going to end up getting, like, corrupted by religion. Or, like, he was going to join the Fosterites or something like that. And then sort of like Jubal was worried about, you know, and so that's where I was. I was concerned with where that was going. And then, you know, um, some of the the weird, like, I guess, heaven aspects that were interjected into there um, and the people that were made like focused on in that. And it's just sort of like, like, how is this coming together? (laughs) And I instantly was concerned that it was going to like just devolve into some you know, weird religion thing, which it didn't in the way that I thought it was going to, it was going to go, which, which I, which was refreshing once it, once we got a little bit deeper into the, like the next section, I think. So that, that was what worried me the most about this section. Um, because I really thought like with the character of Patty, that she was going to be successful in bringing them into being a fosterite. (laughs) Um, And not necessarily the way that it played out with her. Yeah, well, let's talk about my girl, Patty. She is (laughs) a member of this religion. She's also in the same, uh, she's a carny with Mike. And her shtick is that she's a snake charmer. She's got like this big snake. And she's covered head to toe in tattoos. And she is a hardcore foster. Like she is a true believer. And she gets close to Mike and Jill. And they have 
a scene together where uh, they reveal that Michael can do some stuff. Yeah. Well, now, and the tattoos aren't just tattoos. They're all tattoos about the life of uh, Foster, who is the patron of the Fosterites, right? Yeah. Well, not they're not all of that, but like his life story is tattooed on her body as part of her head to toe. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, that's like, that's over the top. <laughs> yeah, and she's, she's, her role is essentially a seductress for that religion. Right. Yeah, and then, yeah, I, as well, when she became a Water Brothers yeah. with Michael, who at that point, so people know, he becomes uh, essentially completely trusting of you once yes. you become a Water Brother, so I thought... That was yeah. the end. That's to gonna be the that's gonna be them. the turn here. Yeah. So this section of the book really establishes that religion is going to be a very important part of this experience. Yeah. Uh, so you meet Patty, um, and at the end of this section, the hook, the major lesson that Mike learns is he learns how to laugh. He learns that humans laugh because it's the <laughs> only way to get through life and all of the pain and anguish that we encounter as humans. They're at the zoo, and there's a scene where uh, a monkey beats the crap out of a smaller monkey, who then in turn goes beats the crap out of a smaller monkey, and Mike just starts laughing hysterically. <laughs> Can't stop because he finally understands that to this point, through 350 to 400 pages of this book, he hadn't laughed, and they call it out a couple of times. Yeah. So now he starts laughing, and suddenly he rocks human life. Do you guys agree that humans only laugh because it's the only way to get through our anguished existences? So it's funny. Because that sounds like a yes, Bruce. <laughs> it's funny because Mike, Mike, like kind of questions Jill when she's like saying, well, that's not true. And basically says what joke is never at the expense or about like the failings or difficulties that someone else is having. Um, and she can't think of one. Like she keeps thinking of all these examples, but at some point, even though we're not necessarily laughing at someone, it's always about something that negatively happened to them. So resident joke expert, <laughs> is there any humor that's not at to someone's like loss or about someone's uh, downfall? I've got one. Patrick, what did the bee say to the flower? What? Buzz. <laughs> I was going to say bad puns. Bad puns and, and dad jokes? Bad puns and dad jokes, which are are often considered the lowest form of humor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, looking at my Why don't act, you just get up there and talk about your life? <laughs> <laughs> looking at my act, I 100% agree with Mike's conclusion here. <laughs> I do a lot of dark jokes. It's always at people's expense. They may not be in the room for for the better <laughs> for the better yeah I, I, I went through because uh, Jill goes through a list of her jokes in her head after he says that and she's like yep. Uh, yeah that one that one that one and I did the same thing and like 97% uh -huh. of mine and probably my best jokes are, <laughs> and it, it and they're not always mean but I think they yeah. are dealing with the uh, hurt or yep. pain that's why that's that's the trope is that comedians have something wrong with them and they're all, all up there you know talking about whatever uh, has hurt them in life so yeah i'm i'm on board with that no again and, and there's truth to that too like when like people like there's an uncomfortable situation you know one of the you know you either run away or one of the other ways to deal with it is to just like laugh even if it's awkward because that helps fill the space of like the awkward uh awkward timing in there and i know there's been some other times 
like I know in my life that have been like emotional or whatever. And then so there's been like some of the times I remember laughing the hardest was like a random joke that out of the yeah. context would be terrible, <laughs> yeah. but it's like, it like made things better in that moment. Right. And helped you to kind of come to grips with it a little bit. So I, I do think there is a lot of truth to it. I don't think that's all that it is, but I, you know, and it's, it's interesting that Heinlein would use this sort of p- perspective of this blank slate to try to like, use it to show these things, right? That he's obviously drawn as conclusions about life, earth, being human, you know, mm. and, and being American, I guess, too. All of those aspects of it, like, he's using that, and this is just one of those uh, points that he's noticed that he's trying to draw out in that, I think. And I, I brought up the uh, experience at the three-letter pharmacy, which it gave me about, like, a four-minute joke. Uh-huh. Uh, and you could... I guess say it's at the expense of my girlfriend, but she loves it. Not, and... not yes, it is at <laughs> well, her expense. Her expense. <laughs> but uh, there's a argument you can say where it's the only good thing that happened from that, right? Otherwise, yeah. it's just nothing but but bad experience. She has a new job now that she likes better. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So there, I mean, so there's another thing. So there's <laughs> I'm the only thing that brings happiness <laughs> yeah, right. through my comedy. Sorry for PatDeGeeseComedy.com. <laughs> yeah. I'll make this very quick, but. So on TikTok last night, I saw um, uh, somebody that was sharing an interview that they had with Stephen Colbert or an interview that somebody had with Stephen Colbert, where he was talking about how he would never get rid of the worst things that happened in his life because you need to have those bad things that happen in order to fully understand like what life is and having, yeah, and having those like negative things that happen you don't want them to happen again, but you need those because that's what makes you grateful for life and the good things that happen. And I think that's especially coming from Stephen Colbert is interesting. Yeah. You know, nonetheless, and he says it much more interestingly and eloquently <laughs> than I, you know, imparted it here. But I think that's a huge aspect of, of this book as well. And Mike's journey as well. Um, and part of what Jubal was saying when he's like, well, the boy's got to, learn how to be on his own and do his own things. It's not all going to be sunshine and rainbows, but that's all about the human experience because nobody's life is all perfect. Everything works. Everything's awesome. Do you you feel differently? Sorry, I was thinking of my next transition. Oh, go ahead. I wasn't paying attention to birds at all. (laughs) (laughs) I was just making eye contact. I mean, you you seem like a guy, not to keep going at this angle, but... uh... I felt like if anyone would disagree, it would be you on things that are humorous do not have to be negative or painful or at someone's expense. No, I thought about it as I was reading the book as well. And, like, I couldn't think of any examples to the contrary either. Okay. Except for your joke that you <laughs> Buzz. gave us. Yeah, no, that was yes. that was a humdinger. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt your transition. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good one, too. And now, like, my mojo's gone. It's like, oh, oh. Like, I, I, was, I was listening to Burns. I was. <laughs> You, know you were what? hearing me. You weren't listening to me. Yeah. I was also trying to think of a way to work in uh, the Garth Brooks song, The Dance. It's all about uh, not knowing what's ahead because there's a lot of bad stuff, but then you'd also miss the highlights. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, very similar to what we were talking about. No, it's true. That is true. Yeah. But you know what would truly improve the uh, human existence? <laughs> Bonin? Sex cults. <laughs> Sex cults. FTW. <laughs> 
phase four of this book is all about Michael starting his religion, his church, his uh, temple, and his followers. Mike's religion encourages everyone to be close, to love without jealousy, to essentially live together in one nest. Everyone gets freaky with everyone. It's basically a pyramid scheme. There's multiple cycles and circles to ascend. Uh, and everyone in Jubal's circle, everyone in his commune, is assimilated. Basically, everyone that Mike has ever touched is roped into well, this religion. Yeah, it's anybody that was a water brother. And so because he shared meals with everybody and... Like, because you get that a little bit with Duke, right? Because Duke was reticent to be a part of this whole Water Brother thing. And Jubal basically said, well, you can quit or you can do it because everybody that's here has to be that close with each other. And, you know, I think the interesting thing that Jubal points out is that before even Michael, Michael came there, that was how they were, right? They all trusted each other. They were like their own inner circle as well. And so Michael just brought more, um, I guess, finality is not the right word, but it was like it was a spe specificity to this is how it happens, and this means that this this now, and he puts a lot more like cognizant sort of weight on it. It's more formality to it. Yes, there you go. That's the word I was thinking of. Uh, so. This section of the book really focuses on his church and the different things and some of the characters that you've been following throughout the book and how they get more involved. It's told primarily through a conversation between Ben and Jubal in Jubal's house. Yes. Ben has gone to visit the nest and he is just uh, completely thrown for a loop. Like he is caught up and Jubal points out that he is caught up in the conventions of sexuality that when... Uh, He's about to have a threesome with Michael and Jill, who he's in love with. Yeah, uh, that's he, important. <laughs> he freaks out and just like runs out of the house, yeah. runs out of the nest, runs out of the building, flies back to Jubal, pours his heart and soul out, and Jubal's like, what are you, an idiot? It <laughs> <laughs> uh, talked a lot about society's um, repression of sexuality and how we have all these conventions and expectations for human relations, relations between partners. Um, and Michael kind of turns that all on his head with his crazy sex cult. Patrick, would you follow Michael's religion? You, you know, I, I don't think I could. And this this is an interesting point because I feel like I've I've been on board... <laughs> I've been on board this whole time with like the, the Heinlein's critiques of society and like goodness and grokking things, but yeah, a, a sex cult, you know, like it would be the five of us and our well, our two ladies. So, we, get, we play some terraforming so, Mars, and then afterward we. Uh, can I do my funny joke before you come in? Yeah. Okay, so. I love my wife more than anything on this planet. Uh, a couple of months ago, I thought there was a chance that I could legitimately die driving my hill down this icy cliff. And uh, I took the time before I did this drive to send a brief message to you guys. And uh, I mentioned that uh, if I die, uh, if any of you ever hook up with my wife, I will haunt you for all eternity. And I swear to God, I will. So I guess I am out on Mike's sex cult religion as well. And didn't you say something about your daughters for Pat? <laughs> Or did somebody else say that? I thought that also came up. Thanks, that came up as well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yep, that was me. Um, so, in the book, it's never referred to as a sex cult. No, those are my terms yeah, laid on top that's of true. it. And these are your terms coming from a human perspective that has been um, warped and pushed around a very judeo-christian mindset of how the world should work and how structure should work which is a lot of what heinlein is talking yeah. about right um 
Now, I I also don't necessarily agree because um, that just feels... I thought we established you were big into orgies. <laughs> no, no, that just that feels like so much more than I'd really want to even deal with, right? Um, but it, it's it's three it's... boobs great, six too much. <laughs> <laughs> Three on one. It's still just dealing with one person instead of having to manage multiple bodies at once. I don't know. That just feels like so much to try to think about, right? Um, The interesting thing about... I I, I don't know. I found this part really fascinating. It's not because it's all about, like, these orgies or whatever. Like, it's, it's, you know, provocative, right? Um, And I, I was looking online, like, Heinlein had originally wrote this... Um, or like had the very broad strokes of what was happening in this like 10 years prior to when he published it because he knew he needed to wait until it would actually be able to be released and not just be completely ostracized. And even when he released it, like there was a big hubbub, like it was banned from being in schools, like taught in any schools, in libraries of schools and all that stuff because of the fact that it was you know, bucking the whole religion, the very prudish sense that Americans look at things. <laughs> Don't from. say like prudish. Like Tom and I have. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's weird and it's foreign because, you know, Mike is weird and foreign. Um, I think that's, that you get the perspective from Ben, right? Telling this to Jubal. And it, it's, it's really interesting because it is... Ben reacting in a way that all of us would react if we were in the same thing. You know, I went to this place because I really like this girl and got crazy. <laughs> so I ran away. So I ran away. <laughs> yeah, been there. Been there, you checks know? out. And then you're talking to your friend about it afterwards and they're like, well, I would have ran away too, but you're stupid for running away. <laughs> you know? And, and it's funny how they present that um, and then how like everything kind of comes to a head in that no pun intended comes to a head in the end of that um I, I don't know i just thought it was a really cool way to use that perspective to show that and then show how he worked away from it and then getting the logic from it because even though jubal doesn't really agree with it and still is fighting against it he understands and can explain the logic of where it came from um which is interesting that like that came in later on um but yeah it's the fact that from Mike learning all of the things that he learned, he realized that with Martian society, being a water brother and being close to people is what's most important, right? And because they're like asexual beings, they don't have to like have sex to reproduce on Mars. Like that's like an act that they just don't do. Um, But what he found as a human who learned all these Martian things and then being together with someone biblically, to use that phrase, um, is the closest that you can grow together with someone. And then, you know, if you're looking at it from that perspective, that that is the most holy thing you can do, like that ends up being the whole basis for all of this stuff. And that you fully understand someone by sharing someone, sharing that time with someone on that intimate level. And that, you know, if you're doing that as an entire group, like you're sharing the most intimate part of you with everyone, which I think is interesting. It's far too past like what I would be comfortable <laughs> with too. Um, but I, I don't know. I thought that that was a fascinating way to kind of break that down. And adding to that, I think it's interesting that even within that, uh, with all the open 
our lack of barriers with all the transparency it was all still like heterosexual relationships like mm-hmm. Heinlein very specifically said that yeah. Michael did not interact with the other men in yes. that way that they shared the experience uh, in like a mind meld way and so that the men were a part of all of the relations but uh, not necessarily man on man yeah 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 and I think uh, again I think this is almost Heinlein inserting his views on what sexuality should be mm-hmm and, oh, yeah. and it's interesting because you brought up it was it was banned in schools and things. I th- it was both uh, considered really progressive for its time and also often seems regressive for yeah. our time. Yeah, like his depiction of women, uh, the pro- progressive aspects where they're you know very intelligent, competent, yeah. you know science uh, fields. They're very enjoy sex, yeah. very uh, aggressively seek sex. Yeah, but they're also often uh, childish, uh-huh. <laughs> very very playful. I think it's probably what Heinlein himself would want. Yeah. And there, there are also weird lines that were just... I, he probably couldn't even have comprehended in a sci-fi aspect. There was a line where he, he talks about uh, uh, Michael's only having water brothers for very like feminine, attractive women and very masculine men. And like the in-between is he just can tell they're bad. <laughs> or that he can sense the wrongness in the in-between. Well, and like nowadays, it's... it's it, eliminates the entire middle of the spectrum i think that's partially true because there's also aspects i can't remember which one it was if it was saul or um what's her face sam i think was one of them there was one of them that like sam was the husband to Ruth. yeah it was one of it was either sam or i think it was sam because sam was the one that they actually that one of them actually talks to for a while i think jubal talks to him for a while and like he was talking about because part of the whole like learning everything and learning to control your body is that you can then shape your body to be the way that you want it to be. And like, so like Sam and Ruth definitely didn't really look the way that they did um, before they met Mike either. And like, I don't think what, what, what Mike is looking for is that people are masculine and people are feminine and like that they fit like a certain body type or anything like that. I think it's that once they, he's seeking that they can open their minds to learn in the way that they need to learn to be able to do the things that he can do. And when they can control that stuff on a certain level, then they can change the things about them that they've wanted to change, which is why everybody ends up looking more that way. Right. Um, So that's at least how I understood that aspect of it. But there's definitely a very distinct point brought up that it was only men with women, um, men never with men. Women liked women. Jill liked women. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, um, it's what so that was okay. Wants, <laughs> um, and that's like that's one thing I'd be curious how much that would. I mean, if Heinlein wrote it, it would probably be the same. But how much that would change if someone in a contemporary time like wrote that aspect of that. Mm. Um, I don't know. That, that, that's one thing I, I kind of thought about with that a, a little bit. Yeah, I agree. It's really interesting. Uh, if we're done with sexuality, I just wanted to <laughs> point out something interesting from the storytelling. I really enjoyed the way the perspectives shifted in this one because you have Ben at the nest sharing his experience. Then Ben is talking with Jubal after the fact. Um, and I thought that just the pacing in this section was really interesting. And it also had my favorite joke at the end when uh, Ben disappears for a while. Jubal checks in on him and gets a letter back and it's signed Aqua Fraternally Yours. Yeah. Like Water Brothers Forever. I just thought <laughs> that was a really clever joke. That is section four, the fifth and 
shortest section of the book. Uh, it's called His Happy Destiny, uh, but I refer to it as Martyrdom. <laughs> Mike's temple gets blown up. Everyone, all of his water brothers, gather together at a hotel, and Mike confronts uh, a big angry mob. He has agitated a lot of people with his religion. He's pissed off the Fosterites, basically every other re religion on the planet, every other authority. He's been uh, causing a lot of mischief, making soldiers uh, not disappear, but like stripping them naked as they're coming to enforce the law on his <laughs> mm -hmm. followers. Um, and this is where the big climax of the book happens. Uh, Burnsy. You take on the final showdown between... Was there anything leading up to the final showdown that we di should discuss? Because my my interpretation is that it's all the pieces getting into place yeah. for this final showdown. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of it is, like, Jubal meeting with Michael and meeting with, like, all the other people that are, like, the Water Brothers. Because he'd never gone there, you know, until, you know, the place got torched. And so he needed to be there because... You know, and, and Michael was in jail, so he wanted to go there to try to get him out as a lawyer and so on and so forth. But then everything, like, he didn't have anything to do because everything was already kind of in motion by the time he got there. Uh, it's kind of like the end of Fight Club when all the bombs are planted and, like, you're just watching the buildings blow up, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing we didn't mention is that Jubal is revered as, like, uh, not the head of the religion, but as, like, the patron, the patron saint, saint yeah. of Mike's religion. So, like, everyone there reveres him, wants to be a part of him. So he's meeting all these other characters that we've been following in the books and learning about them and what's happened in their lives as a result of being a part of this religion. Right. Which is, it's it's funny because he's the only one that hasn't, like, gotten back together with them and done the things to become, like, a full-fledged member of the Inner Circle because you're already, everybody's, like, grandfathered in, basically, because they were one of his original Water Brothers. Mm. But then they all still go back and and do the final what I can't remember what it's called. It's a final water ceremony, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, and but he was the only one that held off doing that, mostly because he's an old man and just <laughs> feels like it's too much for him <laughs> to 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 do all the sexy stuff. Um, but I I think it was I, I I don't know I thought a lot of that stuff was really interesting because you have this aspect of Jubal. You know, and, you know, Michael calls him a father because he basically was his father. And it's this sort of aspect of Jubal where he wants to go there and he wants to do whatever he can. But it's that realization that a parent gets eventually that I, you know, they're running their own path. I can't do anything anymore. So I just have to sort of sit back and watch them live their life. Mm -hmm. Like I can I can try to give them guidance and I can help answer any questions they have or if they have problems, I can help them with it. But that's what that like whole chapter is. Um, and it's interesting that a lot of the other portions of the book are sort of still from Mike's perspective, even if he's not the main person there. It shifts with the piece about Ben and Jubal. But then after that, it's basically Jubal. Yeah, the final section book. is all Jubal. Yeah. yeah. And and I think I think it's really neat that we followed him through this path of it so that you get sort of that... He's still kind of an outsider working his way in with the rest of the people. So you're able to get his emotional response to what happens that you don't get from anybody else because everybody else had already understood that this is what was going to happen. Um, this was his sort of, you know, his final steps towards martyrdom, like you yeah. said. 
Um, and it was the only way for this scene to have like the emotional yes. punch. Yeah, yeah. And like his reactions and how he kind of goes through all of it and tries to kill himself basically because he couldn't handle everything that was happening. Um, I don't know. I just thought all of that was really was really interesting and it did help carry like an emotional punch, but then also helped to sort of impart like if you view things with, in this case, the truth of what everything is in the book, like you shouldn't be sad because you know that, you know, they've moved on from this corporeal being and is now, you know, moving on to this other thing and that they're always with you because, you know, you're going to grok them in fullness. And, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I love the jokes about cannibalism with Duke <laughs> um, and how like, cause Duke was the one that was reticent about joining him because of like, that whole aspect. The Martian practice of eating their dead to yeah. understand them fully. Yeah. And then how that just changes and that's just the running joke between him and Mike. <laughs> it's just so funny uh, to me. I just thought that I thought that was great. Patrick, you are probably the darkest hearted of all of us here. <laughs> you love chucking dice and killing people. Michael goes and confronts the mob. Uh, what are your impressions going back to that scene? You had already known what was going to happen. You yeah. knew the ending of this book, but you revisited for this show. Does it still carry an emotional punch knowing how things are going to turn out between Mike and the mob? Uh, it did not. No, the first time it did, that was probably one of the few elements I enjoyed. <laughs> probably because uh, at the time action. I was just looking for action and death. <laughs> yes, um, gets his arm blown off by a shotgun. Yes, yes, yeah. Finally. Yeah, and this this time, um, you know, knowing it was coming, I did not. So, um, I was looking for metaphors a lot of the time. I, I thought, like what Joey mentioned about it, uh, you know, a lot of it is just a parent, you know, raising their child. Yeah. Metaphors, that type of thing. I wanted to know if he was going for like a Christ metaphor here. Like it sure it, felt like yeah, it. Yeah, like you it, yeah. mentioned you you called it martyr yourself. Um, I I really felt like that's what he was going for. Um, Is that going to be the new phrase instead of cannonball yourself? Martyr yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, you know, once I, I really felt, I think, what he was going for, and they've been setting it up for a long, long time, that, like, death is not, not yeah. a bad thing at all to Mike. So even if it was kind of horrific, he's... He's ready and happy and proud and and I, naked. Yeah, yep. and naked falls out. Well, and they went out and confronted the pitchforks, right? Yeah. And I wish it, it was went tried as well it. As we thought. <laughs> Should have used tried it. No, but these yeah. were the poor people. These, oh, weren't, yeah, the, right. these weren't the kings, the gods. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it did make me wonder. Like you brought up, would you have joined the religion? I would not have joined the religion. I feel like I wouldn't have joined the mob. I don't know where. I wouldn't have joined. Well, I'd, I'd hope I wouldn't have. Yeah, joined I don't know where I would be if this were happening in in our society. I'd be watching on the news, I guess, and be like, "Glad I'm not there." <laughs> in old Saint Pete, you've been cracking jokes about it. Yeah, somewhere. I'd be yeah looking for material. <laughs> you gotta hand it to him. Hey. Oh. The book ends. It closes the door. It closes the story loop on so many things. This book is tremendously well constructed there's a lot of interesting characters a lot of seeds that are planted at the beginning that pay off at the end it's a really interesting ride one of the things i wanted to discuss with you guys was how well did heinlein, heinlein predict the future um well we talked about it already he missed on like the cultural things that have changed kind of <laughs> over time um especially in like the whole mob mentality thing there's 
definitely a racial slur thrown into there <laughs> about how to take care of uh, of Mike. Um, you know, the homosexual types of things that just weren't even touched on. But granted, looking back at the 50s, that was not something that was anywhere close to even well-known probably at that point. Yeah, and this book released in 61. Yeah. One thing that he predicted well, in my opinion, was the corporatization of everything. Like the Fosterites specifically, they have yeah, ads yeah. on everything. They have like their holy soda, their holy beer, their holy this, their holy that. And like, it's all funneling money into the church. It's like, oh, well, yeah. Like, I don't know if that was the way things were in the late 50s, yeah. early 60s, but it sure feels like how things are now. I will say though... So I check think, out our sponsor's website at premierhealthmn.com. <laughs> that's premierhealthmn.com. I will say the one thing that he that's not quite the same, though, is I feel like now, and this what, I think this story would take place probably 100 years from now if we're looking at a timeline or something like that. I don't think he ever actually says a date, which is smart because, right. yeah. you know, that'll just be obsolete whenever. Um, like, religion is not nearly as powerful, I think, in our society yeah. as it is being interpreted to get to at some point. Um, like people going to church is on a downturn. Um, there's still lots of people, you know, that, you know, grow up and do things with religion and stuff like that. But it is like, it is heading downward. Um, now granted, maybe it's something like the Fosterites coming around and <laughs> making it for the 21st century yeah, and then everybody will join back up. But, um, I don't know. I think I think that's I think that's interesting. Um, uh, that's an interesting piece that doesn't really play out in the prediction as much. Don't yeah. really think it change really, but some of the the technology is always hard to predict. Well, right. The uh, the one that he got, which I at least if Wikipedia is accurate, is that. Uh, he allegedly is credited for inventing the waterbed. <laughs> oh, seriously? Yeah. Huh. It's mentioned here. It's mentioned in a, a different book of his that he wrote around the time. And uh, years later, somebody made one, <laughs> tried to get, like, patent it or copyright it or whatever. And they, they, they said no. They, they referred to <laughs> Heinlein's works and <laughs> said it's, it's too similar to the, the beds he mentioned in his books for you to, to get a patent there. So he nailed that one. Um, well, that's fascinating because, like, Mike didn't sleep in the pool. Like, he hung out in the pool and slowed down his metabolism so he didn't have to breathe. They laid on the floor inside the nest. So interesting that he gets credit for it. <laughs> there, there's one more. The, uh, of course, communication technology. He was way off. They're heavily phone dependent. Oh, I think yeah. they were like video phones, video but phone, they're all, yeah. you know, they got one line in their house, and <laughs> he gets like tons and tons of junk mail. So you can just see, you know, that. That those modes of communication or the newspaper is really big yeah. still. <laughs> well, and like also the description of uh, like stereo tubes or whatever yeah. <laughs> makes it sound like they're these huge contraptions when it's like TVs are like razor thin now. Yeah. And I think that's <laughs> funny too. Yeah. So he predicted the future poorly. <laughs> <laughs> what stood out with Michael as the protagonist? Um, you know, he was, uh, I, th I think really just a tool, like a lens for Heinlein to critique society through Yeah. really. And he was, like I said, the, the humor was really good. A lot of the times, uh, playing off that aspect, uh, the, the character itself was, uh, you know, n not much depth at all. I think for much of the book because he was a blank slate, but yeah. that, that grew and grew and grew. So, but I think his original intention was just to, here's all I can attack everything i everything i think is wrong with the world yeah 
I thought Michael's powers were interesting and the assertion that all humans could conceivably do the same thing. I thought that was rather thought-provoking. Yeah. It made me think of uh, the Bradley Cooper movie Limitless. Oh, yeah. i never seen it, but I saw like the ads and knew about it where it's like, you know, kind of like playing off of that uh, Tommy Boy quote. The average person uses 10% of their brain. What do you use? One and a half percent. The rest is filled with malted hops and bong resin. <laughs> but no, that whole Bradley Cooper thing is all about 10%. If you use more of your brain, you'd have superpowers, right? <laughs> um, so that kind of plays into that, I guess. Um, one thing I was wondering that they allude to at one point in the book, um, and maybe a second time at the end, but do you think that he is actually the Archangel Michael? I think the end of the book kind of gives you a definitive uh does it though or are they just calling him that because that's the position he's in like that's i don't know i think it since it was alluded to and then it was mentioned at that point i kind of feel like that that was the case um which is interesting a little bit it's a step farther than i thought he maybe would have gone with it yeah and interesting for him to be so i don't know against modern religions and then perhaps even hint at that direction yeah but i mean then the point is well that's you know god would have sent the archangel michael down to try to set people right right and so that was why he was sent the way that he was sent sure. to do what he did you know and and once like an angel gets sent down to the planet they don't remember they're an angel they don't remember any of that it's all about you know they're being hopefully doing the things that they need them to do i guess but I don't know. That was one aspect of it that I thought that I thought was interesting when they randomly mentioned it, and then yeah, at the end, how they called that out. Um, I know it was a better representation of the Archangel Michael than uh, whatever that John Travolta movie was, where he was the Archangel <laughs> Michael. But the phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Right. I wouldn't have guessed that with a thousand guesses. <laughs> Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting about Michael was that he corrupted everything he touches. Corruption is a strong word, but basically everyone in Jubal's circle, they all become water brothers. And like everyone that Michael ever interacts with gets rolled into the church. Like I know they say that he's churning through thousands of potential applicants to filter for who could actually uh, progress in the church. But ultimately, everyone that he comes in close contact with falls in line behind him. And I thought that was interesting. Power of charisma. Yeah. Oh, is that what life was like for you, Patrick? <laughs> There's an endless train of dudes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from what I've heard from you guys, I'm going to tear up my invitations to the sex orgy. <laughs> Sounds like you're not interested. <laughs> Maybe Sorry, work harder. <laughs> yeah, we're not quite to the point where we can grok in fullness yet what you're asking us. So. <laughs> I, uh, corruption seems like a weird word. He influences them or once they can understand his viewpoint they believe in it wholeheartedly right true and is it just filtered that we only see the people that said yes to it or do people have not have free will to um have a differing opinion like it didn't seem to me that there was any free will it seemed like everyone eventually fell in line like if you're around michael enough like you just move into the sex cult I mean, the fact that you're still calling it a sex cult and corrupting him, like, it just comes off in such a negative way. They're loaded right? words, for sure. They're definitely loaded words. Uh, um, for... I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a negative, though, right? I think it's... I, I don't think he's 
brainwashing them into it. But what I think it is, is if they can understand the Martian language and the Martian way of thought, then put that connection to what they know as a human, then they're going to understand the same thing he understands, I think is more so what it is. So you don't think it's a, an assimilation like the Aryan race and Hitler? <laughs> Jesus, no, I don't think so. I, I, um, I wouldn't go that far, but the, the problem, which you hit on earlier, what I think with every religion is it's always in-group and out-group, yeah. and it, it seems to be happening here. Yeah. And, you know, what what happens to the, the in-betweeners even? Like I said, I wouldn't be on either side of this fight, but right. I'm also not in the in-group. Well, so... I think the I mean the idea probably is eventually that they will convince everybody that this is the way, right? Hopefully, um, it's a scary thought though. Even if it's even if it's right, and he's a great so dude. Here's the thing though, um, like we've already bought into a version of that. Like we live in a society that's been predominantly formed around Judeo-Christian values. Mm-hmm. Of you know, it's a it's a it's a man and a woman like monogamous relationships, and you know this is the structure. You know these people are in charge, and we are the worker bees that work for them. Like there's all of these things that we've already kind of just blindly assimilated into. Um, so we're all Ben Claxton. <laughs> yeah, until you're given the option at something that seems better, right? Yeah, interesting. I don't know. Like, I think that's because that's the that's the whole thing is it's so hard to look at, like, because we just do the things that we do because that's how things have always been done, right? Um, and then that's why it's so scary, you know, for a lot of people, like with trans people, which seems to be one of the biggest things right now. And it's like, you know, it's something that's so outside of this norm that we've existed in for however long that we've lived however long our ancestors have lived because that's been like the overruling sort of system for hundreds of years. And so Mike is kind of that sort of type of injection of something foreign into that, that it takes a while for the system to either figure out how it's going to handle that or how that idea is going to assimilate into how everything works and you're still going to have the people that are railing against it i think it's terrible um i think it's ruining or degenerating society um but if you look at like mike's thing sure you can call it a sex cult but really what it is (laughs) is it's a group of people that have grown together to the point where they are of one mind with each other um i don't I guess I didn't imply from the book that there was any negative connotations around how people were getting sort of talked into doing that. Sure. And one thing that I've been poking a lot of fun at the sex cult. I know you have been. (laughs) I think uh, I love the core message of love everyone of the church of many worlds. That's uh, I think uh, the most important value, but it's what a fascinating concept for a book to bring all of this in and to take on religion and to create a, Martyr. I think it just this whole ride is just fascinating. We are yeah, uh, right at three hours. We're right at three hours, so we should probably work towards closing this <laughs> sure. discussion. There are a number of amazing ancillary characters. Uh, Burns, you noted that the ancillary characters were some of the best 
aspects of this book. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love Jubal. I loved uh, Douglas, the supreme overlord of the world. I loved uh, Becky Vesey, who played an important role early on. Patty, uh, Burns, you mentioned Anne. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of interesting characters sprinkled throughout this book. Any other strengths or weaknesses with this book? I mean, we already touched on it a little bit. One of the weaknesses is that it's definitely dated. Um, that's the problem with any sci-fi as time goes on is that there's certain things that like, well, that's not going to be true. Like that would never happen. Right. (laughs) Um, but I mean, especially if they're like sort of set within like our world. Right. So that's always one of the things that's, that's difficult with sci-fi like this. Do you think we are spoiled living in this era, especially with video games of constant remakes, remasters, <laughs> reimagining, bring things up to the current levels of technology? <laughs> I don't know if I'd say we're spoiled, because some people would say that that's like a terrible like business proposition, that we're just going to keep remaking the same games and sell them to you over and over and over again. Yeah, and we learned that Patrick hates uh, quality of life improvements with the burning fiery passions (laughs) last month. Uh, Patrick, who should read this book? Um, Not anyone looking for a duplicate of Starship Troopers. That's for sure. This book is a slow burn. and I I tend to like slower paced books. I thought this book was phenomenal. Yeah, I was... like I mentioned, I did not like this the first time I read it. I really, really enjoyed it this time. I thought it was fantastic this time. If if you want a uh, a good, well written critique of society that will make you you know think about how you interact with the world and yeah. things like that, uh, dive right into this book. Yeah, and I, I think I still think that you know even though we've talked about some of the parts of it that are dated, as long as you can get past that and you're not going to get triggered by any of it completely, um, I would say that it's. it is it's still like it's still timely now um just as much as it was when it was written because i think a lot of what it talks about are things that you can still like apply to Mm -hmm. our current society today i think it'll continue to be timely as long as there are differing views on religion yes yeah (laughs) because at the core of this book this book is all about uh religion right theology is that like core to it Mm -hmm. so it's a book about religion it'll always be timely in that regard well so that's the other thing that i find is interesting and it makes sense is that because i mean we're nowhere close to having an actual like global government like the federation is in this um and i think it's funny that we would be able to get to the point where we would have one global government overseeing everything before (laughs) we would answer the religion problem. Um, Yeah. I think that's accurate, too. Well, I forget if it's Mike or Jubal pointed out at some point in the book that so much of religion relies on faith for the things that it can't explain. If you can't explain something, well, just believe. If you believe, then this religion is valid. Yeah. Well, and that's why also, like, I think Mike said... They're just putting this as a religion because it's the only way to explain it to people that don't fully grok it, right? And I think that's part of what's different about what Mike is peddling is that it's not something that you have to fill in the gaps with faith. It's if you study enough and really determination, which we haven't talked about, like that's the whole thing is like dedication, determination. You put in the work you're going to get to that point. And, you know, if anybody that wasn't in the inner circle um, is a sign of that, it's Jubal, right? Because 
he's like completely dedicated. He he he's disciplined. That's the other word that they use is disciplined. Um, you know, even though he he has a way of living that's different than everybody else <laughs> he's definitely disciplined at learning and understanding and working and that like was the core tenant of all of this is that if you work hard enough you can fully understand everything um and you don't have to take anything on faith um and so that's what makes it different and that's probably something that is why someone like patty would sign up right even though she's a foster right and they don't have to re they don't have to reject those other things like that's the other aspect of it that they point out is that you don't have to reject whatever your religious beliefs are because this doesn't counteract that this just helps prove that to an extent and yeah, more that's a good point because there's foster rights that are a part of the church of many worlds that stinky's an arab he's a part yep. uh, he's a main <laughs> character um sam yeah. and uh ruth are are jewish that's right and I think Saul was too. Um, so yeah, there's people from all different religions mm. in it. Yeah. Uh, perhaps I focused on the sexuality too much, the hard work, the dedication, <laughs> the discipline. Those are all things that I can get behind. So yes. maybe maybe I would fall in line with Mike. It's just the one issue that I took was just that everyone that interacted with them seemed to believe that this is the way. Yeah, that's why that the was word. after time and learning about it, right? Um, you know, and if you get to the point where you're able to have someone jump off a roof and you can slow them down so that they land on the ground safely. Like you'd probably, you'd probably line up too. Yeah. Oh man. I would be just a menace with tele teleportation. <laughs> <laughs> like I would. Well, that's why you wouldn't get through some of the checks and you wouldn't get to the circle where you could learn teleportation Yeah. because there's a wrongness right. in you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of terraforming Mars, it's definitely in my brain. <laughs> Final thoughts and takeaways on Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein. Yeah, I think that was yeah. what it was. Patrick, you suggested this topic for the show. Happy with that choice? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm glad you did a Mars show, man. I would have never come back to this book, and I would have told everybody it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> and now, it's, now I'm the exact opposite. So I yeah. think, yeah, like I said, I've already said people should read it. I think yeah. you should read it. I wasn't m mature enough at... 16 or 17 yeah. or whenever I read it the first time but uh, no, now I'm, it's fantastic your lowered expectations made me enjoy it probably more <laughs> okay. so that helps you know yeah. um, which was the opposite on like when we were talking about the Silmarillion before you know it was yeah. probably the opposite on that sure. where it's like yeah this isn't quite the greatest thing I've ever read but I, it was fine I did not think that it was fine uh, Stranger in a Strange Land is great it is a very uh, at times very plotting book so like if you're looking for action and a page turner uh, check out the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they'll ever um, make this as a TV show, movie, anything like that? It seems hard. Yeah, I think that uh, like it would it would piss off a lot of people. Like yeah. Christians would be robbed the wrong way by the Fosterite religion for sure. Yeah. Every other religion would probably feel marginalized. I think that uh, it would do exactly what Michael did and just alienate too many people to really find a footing. Yeah, I mean, I could see it being something... I mean, HBO would love it because it's sex, right? Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> all right, yeah, this is our Game of Thrones response. Not a lot of head crushing. You know, They'd probably find a way to make like the discorporations a little more gory or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. And they'd have to butcher some of it, right? Like just, you oh, have yeah. to have just I don't know, six episodes just hanging at Jubal's pool <laughs> talking and like 
eating sandwiches. One whole episode, Mike at the bottom of the pool just laying there. Yeah, that's right. Like, you don't show the action of the things landing and everything yeah, like that. Yeah. You just show Mike underneath the pool just sitting there. Yeah, hearing his time. thoughts. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Uh, one last thought on this. Like, I could not picture Michael as anyone other than Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop. See, I don't... We talked about this a little bit, but I don't view things that way when I read, so I didn't really have an image of him in my mind that was that clear. Yeah, Jubal was remarkably close to uh, Jet as well. Oh, yeah, that's nowhere close to what it should be. But... Yeah, I know, but uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, great book, check it out. <laughs> Next month, we are going back to the table for another board game show with a board game randomizer. Adam Wilson, Joey, and I will each put together a list of 10 games from our personal collections and we'll have a randomizer choose one from each list for us to break down. Uh, I have no idea what we're actually going to talk about. Some of my <laughs> games uh, that I'm thinking about, I'm going to have Clank in there for sure because I desperately want to get Clank to the table. Uh, probably Parks if you guys hadn't played it before. I'm going to have one deck dungeon in it and maybe a tiny epic game. So that's four out of my 10 listed. Burns, you have any idea what you're going to have on your list? Um... No, I, I mean, there's quite a few games that I haven't played or haven't played enough of. So, um, and like, there's some, like one of them that's like more of a campaign type of thing that would not end up in there then because it just wouldn't make sense to play it in that perspective. But um, no, I'm not 100% sure off the top of my head. Well, we got one month, so let's get cracking, my friend. <laughs> well, I mean, I just have to look at it. Like not looking at my shelves to like make the list makes it difficult. Yeah, yeah. I texted you guys about it at one forty-five a.m. last night. And, you definitely uh, did that too. Yeah, don't have my phone on me, so I don't know if you guys ever responded. Uh, Adam did today and was like, "By tomorrow, you mean today at ten a.m., not Monday?" Because <laughs> you said tomorrow at one forty-five <laughs> this morning. Oh, which you know. But I think he sent that after 10 a.m. anyway, so... Yeah. Respond to him now on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be even more confusing. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Outside is Overrated. Please review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Patrick at Pat DeGeese on Twitter and Instagram, for and for Joey at HobbyBoxBurns on Twitter, I'm Tom Sidlachik at Tom Sidlachik OIO. We'll talk to you next month. Stay inside, kids.